Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Next subject, Jesuit, fearful, engineer, podcast generation, file section, new employee, 18th episode. Come in. Sit down. Care if I talk? I'm kind of nervous when I take tests. Plus, I have this cyclical condition that forces me to create a conspiracy theory show every two months and then ramble on about it for sometimes two or three hours at a stretch. I guess it all started back in my childhood. Just please don't move. Sorry. I already had an IQ test this year. I don't think I've ever had one of these. Reaction time is a factor in this, so please pay attention. Now, answer just as quickly as you can. Sure. I want to talk to you about redeeming my straw man. Redeeming your straw man? Why, that's one of those very silly ideas promulgated by the Sovereign Citizens Movement. What? We covered it in episode five. Good show? Yeah, I think it came out great. Do you know sovereign citizen tax beliefs are one of the things that ended up sending Wesley Snipes to jail? And is this part of the test? No, just warming up, that's all. I mean, it was an early show, so it was a little less pretentious. It's not some fancy recreation of a legendary sci-fi movie opening scene or anything. You're in the desert, walking along in the sand, when all of a sudden... Is this the test now? Yes, you're in the desert, walking along in the sand, when all of a sudden... What one? What? What desert? Doesn't make any difference what desert. It's completely hypothetical. But how come I'd be there? Maybe you're fed up. Maybe you want to talk about something larger than just the topic of conspiracy theories for once. Who knows? You look over the horizon, and you see a paranoid, visionary science fiction author fearful. He's stumbling toward you. Which paranoiac, visionary sci-fi author is that? You know what horse lover fat is? Of course. It's the alternate ego assumed by Philip K. Dick in his masterpiece, Valus, in which the author tries to reconcile an ecstatic vision that redefined his life permanently with his own creeping suspicion that maybe this event was nothing but a delusion. Same thing. Never seen a horse lover fat, but I understand what you mean. You push Philip K. Dick down on his back, fearful. You make these questions up, Mr. Interviewer? Or they write him down for you. PKD lays on his back, fearful, addled by years of drug use and latent mental illness, trying desperately to reach for his typewriter. But he can't. Not without your help. But you're not helping. What do you mean I'm not helping? I mean you're not helping. Why is that, fearful? They're just questions, fearful. In answer to your query, they're written down for me. It's a test designed to provoke podcasters to address the vast and still expanding legacy of one of the most important thinkers on the meaning of human existence as increasingly mediated by technology and our realizations that the idea of reality is fundamentally slippery. Shall we continue? Describe in single words only the good things that come into your mind about Dana Unicorn. Dana Unicorn? Yeah. Let me tell you about Dana Unicorn. Sorry about that, but she's a real nice lady, and I didn't care for your tone. 
Holy shit, this is kind of a mess. While I clean up, we might as well discuss the unique, singular, frequently insane world created by Philip K. Dick in his lifelong quest to explain the reality that fascinated, troubled, and frightened him. And, while we're at it, how that quest has impacted so many subsequent movies, books, and ideas you love to this day. Welcome back to The Paranoid Strain. Everyone else, you were born into a black iron prison that you can't smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what Valis is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You go back to debunking conspiracy theories, and you believe whatever you want to believe. You take the pink pill, you meet Vallis, and you learn why it is, exactly, that the Empire never ended. Pink pill it is. Wait, who are you? Why are we talking about this? And why does this pink pill say Pepto-Bismol in tiny little letters? Uh, I gotta go. God damn it, we're doing two of these weird episodes in a row? Yeah. As much ground as we covered in our last episode, which considered how really smart people have tried and mostly failed to understand reality at its most basic level since humans started developing organized methods of thinking, there's still a few other major related topics we want to get to, and they all converge rather neatly in the person of Philip Kindred Dick. At his death in 1982, he was an obscure slinger of dozens of pulp science fiction novels, but now he's seen as one of the most important, influential thinkers on the subject of what exactly it means to be human in an often dehumanizing, technologically advancing, increasingly unreal-seeming modern world. But before we get to that, of course, we have to welcome in the newbies. Hey, new folks, you've picked a weird episode as your introduction to the show. Since while we're going to touch on a few conspiracies in this one, that's usually our main focus. Every two months, we send out a lovingly handcrafted, locally sourced, artisanal MP3 file chock full of information to help you understand why your Martinizer, your underwear inspector, and especially that one rogue cop will stop at nothing to avenge his partner's death and bring Salazar's operation down permanently. Why they all believe such dumbfuck conspiracy theories. I'm your host, Fearful Jesuit, a man who's currently struggling to come up with a new pseudonym for Fiancé Jesuit. Personally, I'm leaning towards the soon-to-be Mrs. Jesuit. I know I've kind of derailed what we hope is your favorite anti-conspiracy theory podcast into uncharted waters, last episode, and obviously in this one, but we hope you'll find the detour worth it in the end. 
As we noted moments ago, this is the second of a two-part series. The first, which you're welcome to skip back and check out, is concerned with the unquestionable fact that, however much we here at The Strain like to uphold the concept of a shared reality against which to judge the claims of conspiracy theorists, neither philosophers nor scientists have ever managed to pin down exactly what we mean when we say reality in the first place. This time, we're going to dig into the ways that one incredibly talented, visionary writer tried to deal with the shifting sands of that reality and how his extensive reading and unique personal experiences led him to craft evocative, prophetic worlds in which his characters struggled mightily to retain their humanity and to comprehend the world that continually, inexplicably, reformed itself around them. The story of Philip K. Dick is the tale of a man whose life was centered around the problem of remaining sane within an increasingly unimaginable world. Incidentally, that remaining sane, he wasn't always so successful with that. In addition to the life and legacy of PKD, we'll also explore the work of some other creative super geniuses who've tried to deal with these same issues. And to complement our explorations of philosophy and science last time, we'll dive into the ways that neuroscientists and other researchers are exploring the mysteries of the most complex known mechanism in the universe. The three pounds of jelly in your skull. We'll also see how PKD's ideas dovetailed with an early form of Christianity that, while heretical these days, was in the 2nd century CE a real contender for coming to dominate the Christian worldview. And it's vastly different than any version of that religion you might previously have been familiar with. Point being, once we're finished, we'll have said everything we have to say about how weird reality is, as well as how tough it can be to nail down what consciousness or even the idea of the self is then we can get back to defending all of that slippery, hard-to-pin-down stuff against the conspiracy yahoos. Thank God. I like it better when the conspiracists are the ones saying all the weird shit. Okay, table set. Let's start off by examining the strange, complicated life of Philip K. Dick. Born in 1928, PKD came of age in the 1950s, which you may be familiar with as the decade that many of our most experienced, politically engaged, Dana, help me out. Senior citizens who were mad as hell that modern culture seems to have moved on without them and yell a lot about it on Facebook. The folks who really hate the phrase, okay, boomer. Yeah, that about nails it. The 50s were the last decade where the world made sense for a certain dwindling yet still highly vocal demographic. Of white people. Yeah, see, the standard cultural reference point for our national discussions pits the calm, placid, prosperous, fat and happy black and white days of the 50s. <laughs> against the brash, conflict and murder-ridden, society-dividing Technicolor 60s. Now, it's worth noting that our septuagenarian and above contingent actually came of age in the 60s and that many were deeply involved in fomenting or supporting the societal shifts that led directly to that decade's controversial reputation. But as time has progressed, many of those same cultural revolutionaries have decided that whole thing was a real mistake, and they now yearn for the time when they rode their bicycles, helmetless through placid, safe streets, playing cards rat-a-tatting in the spokes, Davy Crockett coonskin caps on their heads, mom at home in the kitchen, dad driving back from the office in a suit and hat. 
all is right and orderly with the world. A man of the previous generation, though, our Phil reached his early 20s during the 50s, the Eisenhower era, when the civil rights movement was only beginning to roil the conscience of middle America and where paroxysms of enforced patriotism like the McCarthy hearings made him feel as an artist, a lefty, and a born weirdo. Kind of like, as another author's famous science fiction novel would title it, A Stranger in a Strange Land. Phil seems to have been born with a nervous, perhaps a paranoid tendency, in his personality. This would, during the course of his life, be exacerbated by any number of factors, including heavy amphetamine use, poverty, and eventually... The Valus Incident. Which will become incredibly important in his later years, and for that matter, in this episode. But it didn't help that so many things that happened around him seemed almost tailor-made to stoke his paranoia. For example, in 1953 or 54, as narrated in the PKD biography Divine Invasions by Lawrence Sutton, the FBI visited young Phil and his wife Cleo. Cleo being, we might want to note here, the first of five wives he married and divorced throughout his lifetime, often amid mutual accusations of abuse. Phil wasn't the kind of guy you'd want to go to for advice on keeping a relationship on track. Anyway, these FBI visits were not all that extraordinary for the time. The couple were known to have left-wing leanings, they were living in Berkeley, which is the center of revolutionary sentiment in the Golden State, and they were friends with all sorts of, to use an unfortunate phrase from the period, commie simps. That is, communist sympathizers. In addition to building the agency's files on people with questionable political leanings to keep J. Edgar off their backs, the agents also kind of became friends with Phil and Cleo. One of them even taught Phil to drive. There was an ulterior motive to their visits, of course. The agents once offered an all-expenses-paid trip to Mexico if the couple would spy on local students while there. Phil and Cleo turned this offer down, and that was apparently that. Sutton reports, decades later, that Cleo, laughing, recalled that the agents probably could see that we were a couple of dips and didn't want much to do with us. But whether he felt this way at the time or not, these visits would eventually come to have a disproportionate impact on Phil's outlook, again Sutton. From 1964 on, he frequently believed himself to be under FBI or other agency surveillance. The Berkeley Red Squad. That's how he eventually referred to those aforementioned, seemingly mostly harmless FBI men provided a vivid foundation for that belief, which caused him great anxiety. Phil later claimed that the agents had asked him to spy on Cleo. Cleo regards this claim as highly unlikely. This is a nice jumping-off point for talking about PKD's attitude toward the world around him. He was kind of a born magical thinker, always imagining forces at play behind the world's surface. You'll recognize this is the same attitude that in most of the people we study eventually results in an unmovable insistence on one conspiracy theory or another as the explanation for the entire reason the world is the way it is. What makes Phil so fascinating, and his work so impactful, is that he was never, ever content to accept any scheme, his or anyone else's, as the final, unquestionable, forever and ever explanation for the reality he found himself in. In his personal life, this led to a constant state of turmoil. In his fiction, though, it produced some of the most compelling ideas ever put in print. Looking at Dick's... Okay, stop it. We get it. The guy's last name is Dick. Hilarious. But get over it, because you're not going to be able to handle it when we have to talk about horse lover fat. Looking at his body of work, it can be difficult to know where to start. Science fiction is a genre known for the heroic number of titles produced by its most prolific practitioners. Even in that company, though, Dick's output is a sight to behold. Over 30 years, he wrote 44 novels and 120 or so short stories. How did he accomplish this impressive feat? Well, 
A heroic consumption of amphetamines probably helped. A 2007 retrospective by Charles McGrath notes that he was known at the height of his drug use to pop as many as a thousand pills per week. Now, that level of abuse has been disputed, but it's clear the man worked like a demon, had a series of contentious and more or less abusive marriages, published a metric fuckton of books, and until the very end of his life could barely make ends meet. The sheer scope of his work makes it hard to summarize his interests. It wasn't all SF, he actually published a number of realistic novels that were focused on life in mid-century California, but a few themes are obvious. The first, unlike many sci-fi writers, Dick doesn't care about the mechanics of future technology. His books aren't filled with loving breakdowns of how some hyperspatial superspeed warp drive is actually functioning. If his characters need to reach distant planets, he'll make sure the technology exists to let them do so. He'll give it a goofy name and then move on. Second, the reason he wrote in the genre, besides the fact that it let him publish at a blistering pace since SF fans are always hungry for new content, was that it let him hypothesize what might happen to everyday human beings who were facing new challenges from the rapid advance of science and technology. Inevitably, for PKD, these questions boiled down to the essential nature of the self, reality, human consciousness, and God, whatever that meant. The page-by-page, line-by-line experience of reading Philip K. Dick is hardly transcendent. An article on themillions.com kindly isolated and analyzed one of the worst of the worst. A sex scene we'll quote here. She leapt, galvanized, as if lost to the shock of a formal experiment. His pale, dignified, unclothed procession become a tall and very thin greenless nervous system of a frog, probed to life by outside means. Victim of a current not her own, but not protested in any way. Uh, Jasmine, what the fuck did I just read? Well, as the article's author, Michael H. Rowe, notes, um, Philip Dick just compared a woman experiencing orgasm to an electrified frog. And she's also her lover's possession, albeit a dignified and greenless possession. Look, no one's going to confuse him with Jimmy Joyce. But it's not the sentences or the individual scenes that make his book so powerful and influential. It's the ideas and the way that he conveys the strange, dislocating experience of being a modern human. Speaking of Joyce, if you're wondering why fearful I got my pseudonym from Ulysses Jesuit loves PKD so much, check out this quote from his novel, The Divine Invasion, in which a character expresses an idea that's clearly Dick's own as follows. Someday, I'm going to prove that Finnegan's Wake is an information pool based on computer memory systems that didn't exist until a century after James Joyce's era. That Joyce was plugged into a cosmic consciousness from which he derived the inspiration for his entire corpus of work. I'll be famous forever. Yeah, okay. I love authors who love other authors I love so much that they create conspiracy theories about those authors that I love. So I'm predictable. Sue me. In spite of the fact that he often wrote both awkwardly and super fast, his most perceptive contemporary peers and critics noticed there was something unique and important about him. Take, for example, Stanislaw Lem. He wrote, among many other incredible books, Solaris, which has been turned into one languorous Tarkovsky film and one more focused Soderbergh film, each in its own way quite good. Lem was also a man of very strong opinions, as he expressed in his broadside of a 1973 essay called Science Fiction, A Hopeless Case with Exceptions. It's a searing critique of the vapidity of the genre, catty, dismissive fun to read even now, but it's most often remembered for the single exception he made to the hopeless case of science fiction, which was, as you might expect, Philip K. Dick. 
Not that Lem was letting Phil off lightly for his frequent literary sins. To quote the essay, It cannot be maintained that Dick has evaded all the traps set for him. He has more defeats than victories in his work, but the latter determine his rank as an author. For a while, these kinds of positive opinions of PKD's books were few and far between. During the bulk of his career, he was known, if at all, as one of a million other sci-fi hacks a dime a dozen. Around the turn of the 1980s, though, that all began to change. First, a bunch of academics started noticing that he had a lot to say about technology and humans and reality and consciousness and started teaching him in their various classes. But even more importantly, director Ridley Scott, fresh off the triumph of Alien, decided to very loosely adapt Dick's novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep into the stone-cold classic film Blade Runner. This was not, in fact, the first time that someone wanted to bring the author's vision to the screen, we might add. John Lennon, presumably eager to emulate the success of fellow Beatle George Harrison's handmade films, wanted to get into the biz, as they say, with an adaptation of Dick's truly hallucinatory and arguably unfilmable Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, coincidentally Jesuit's favorite PKD novel. On the one hand, I'm really sorry I missed out on seeing that. On the other hand, Yoko Ono has yet to appear in a PKD adaptation so you take the bad with the good. Anywho, Phil was able to see a rough effects cut of Blade Runner months before it was released, and was reportedly stunned by how well the production captured the vision of future Los Angeles that was in his mind when he wrote the novel. Unfortunately, he was never able to see the finished film, as he died in March of 82, months before it was released. Decades since, of course, PKD's corpus has been strip-mined for influence and direct adaptation by a nearly uncountable number of projects across a variety of media. We'll cover some of the highlights later in this episode, but for now it makes sense to focus on one major part of the man's life we deliberately skipped over in our capsule biography. That's the time period Dick himself would refer to throughout his remaining years as 2374, which doesn't represent a single date, i.e. February 3rd. Or March 2nd for our date format challenge non-American listeners. Wait, hey, wait a minute, bucko. I'm one of those day, month, year people. Our version makes more sense. Show some respect. Oh, really? It makes more sense to put the day first? Then why do we say the date out loud as, for example, June 16th, 1904? We don't. We say 16th June, 1904. What the fuck is wrong with you people? Anyway, it's actually shorthand for a date range indicating February and March of 1974, when Phil's already odd life got kicked up to a completely new level. By the way, to give me a bit of break from extensive quoting, Jesuit has kindly alternated clips from various PKD audiobooks with my readings throughout the rest of this episode. So, like, don't freak out when somebody else reads something. Dana's still here. It's all gonna be okay. The scene that initiated these events is almost astonishingly banal, as Dick himself would later narrate, 
In February, I had major oral surgery and was home recovering, still under the influence of the sodium pentothal and in severe pain. Tessa. That is his then-wife. And here comes one of them audiobook quotes Dana mentioned. Tessa phoned the oral surgeon, and he phoned a pharmacy to send out a painkiller. The doorbell rang, and I went, and there stood this girl, with black, black hair and large eyes, very lovely and intense. I stood staring at her, amazed, also confused, thinking I'd never seen such a beautiful girl. And why was she standing there? She handed me the package of medication, and I tried to think what to say to her. I noticed then a fascinating gold necklace around her neck, and I said, What is that? It certainly is beautiful. Just, you see, to find something to say to hold her there. The girl indicated the major figure in it, which was a fish. This is a sign used by the early Christians, she said, and then departed. Wait, was that it? That was a big event? No, that was just the beginning. The way Phil saw it, the visit by that girl was the first encounter of the most significant thing he'd ever experienced. It's tough to summarize the events and impacts concisely, and as we'll see later, Dick would return to and reanalyze this topic endlessly, but here are some highlights. He experienced himself as being pierced by a pink light. Yeah, a beam of pink light is consistently how he explained what he thought of as his mind suddenly being put in contact with another, much greater consciousness. That I'm in direct mind-to-mind touch with extraterrestrial intelligence systems has been obvious to me for some time, but what this means is not in any way obvious. And in the excellent novel he titled after the name he gave to this phenomenon, Valus, or Vast Active Living Intelligence System, the narrator, whose name is Philip K. Dick, and who's hearing this experience described by a different character named Horse Lover Fat, We know it's complicated. We'll explain later. Anyway, narrator Philip K. Dick described the event thus. God, he told us, had fired a beam of pink light directly at him, at his head, his eyes. He had been temporarily blinded, and his head had ached for days. It was easy, he said, to describe the beam of pink light. It's exactly what you get as a phosphine after image when a flash bulb has gone off in your face. Fat was spiritually haunted by that color. Sometimes it showed up on a TV screen. He lived for that light, that one particular color. But of course, the pink light was just the beginning. He also experienced a variety of other audio and visual phenomena, which you can think of as communication or hallucination depending on your perspective, but that he talked about this way. Soon thereafter, the dazzling shower of colored graphics descended over me in the night. Dick often expounded on this singular moment, without being on any mind-expanding drugs. One night I found myself flooded with colored graphics, which resembled the non-objective paintings of Kandinsky and Clay, thousands of them one after the other, so fast as to resemble flash cut used in movie work. This went on for eight hours. Each picture was balanced, had excellent harmony, and possessed idiomatic style, that of a well-known non-objective artist. I could not account for what I was seeing. This took place in the dark and was evidently phosphine activity within my eyes, but the source of the stimulation of the phosphines was an enigma to me at the time. But I was certain that those tens of thousands of lovely, balanced, quite professional and aesthetic harmonious graphics could not be originating within my own mind or brain. I have no facility with graphics, and besides, there were too many of them. Even Picasso, whose style predominated for over an hour, never actually painted so many. Okay. His brain was suffused for hours with a series of abstract art images. Weird. But again, not enough to change the person's whole mindset. No, but the weirdness continues. Again, quoting Sutton in his biography, Divine Invasions. 
It was in this weakened condition, in late summer, that Phil was zapped by the pink light, information that Christopher suffered from a potentially fatal inguinal hernia. This diagnosis was confirmed by the physician and corrective surgery was performed in October. Again, Dick in Valus. The cardinal point which Fat had made to us regarding his experience with the pink beam, which had injured and blinded him, was this. He claimed that instantly, as soon as the beam struck him, he knew things he had never known. He knew specifically that his five-year-old son had an undiagnosed birth defect, and he knew what that birth defect consisted of, down to the anatomical details. Down, in fact, to the medical specifics to relate to the doctor. Interesting. But that's just crazy talk, right? Yeah, except this turned out to be true. His son Christopher was indeed treated with surgery for an inguinal hernia that could have proved to be life-threatening and which was previously undiagnosed. This event formed part of Dick's identification of himself as able to predictively experience the future on occasion. He was, to use his own formulation, a precog, which you may remember as the ability displayed by the weird people sitting in the white pool in Minority Report, which is yet another important silver screen PKD adaptation. I'm sure you all understand the legalistic drawback to pre-crime methodology. Here we go again. Look, I'm not with the ACLU on this, Jeff. Well, let's not kid ourselves. We are arresting individuals who have broken no law. But they will. The commission of the crime itself is absolute metaphysics. The pre-cogs see the future, and they're never wrong. But you don't believe that Dick could see the future. Or that he's got his son's medical diagnosis from a pink light called Valus, right? <laughs> Jesus, I feel the show is going off the rails. No, I don't. There are any number of alternative explanations. He read an article he then subconsciously and correctly associated with Christopher's symptoms. Or it was a lucky guess. And by the way, Dick constantly made oracular pronouncements, whether in his books or personal life, and only a few of them could ever be said to have, quote-unquote, come true. Or maybe someone with more medical knowledge mentioned this condition at some point and Dick only recalled it later. Anyway, we're not buying his explanation. But what's important for our purposes is that he thoroughly believed it, and it caused him in turn to believe there was a good reason why he should take his 2374 experience seriously enough to completely focus all of his professional efforts and personal interests around it for the remaining eight or so years of his life. What do you mean by refocus his professional efforts and personal interests? Well, I mean that everything he wrote after this event was related directly to it. And at least one of those novels, Valus, is among the best of his fictional output. Wildly, deeply affecting rumination on consciousness, sanity, humankind's relationship to the infinite, the necessity of forgiving oneself, the hope for transcendence. It's amazing. Moreover, the experience led him to re-examine in minute detail every thought and interaction he'd ever had, including an exhaustive, ongoing picking through of his own earlier books to see what they meant in light of his later revelation. In fact, he eventually came to believe that his past books were actually directly influenced by the 1974 event, which occurred long after the publication. More on this later. By far the most important single piece of writing that came out of this experience, though, was what he called his exegesis. When you do the same Google search that we did, you'll see the most common definition for this word is a critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of scripture. And since he most of the time saw his 2374 experience as putting him in contact with the divine, that name makes sense. In practice, what's come to be known as the exegesis of Philip K. Dick is at least a couple million words, written on notebooks, single sheets, scraps, any sort of paper that happened to be on hand, and shoved haphazardly into folders only to be painstakingly reconstituted by scholars after his death. It's approximately 9,000 pages of Dick constantly examining and re-examining his own thoughts about what had happened to him and what the fuck it could all possibly mean. Now, admittedly, we're Philip K. Dick fanatics. 
that even we couldn't be expected to read all of his exegesis. That's insane! But we did read the entirety of the 900 or so pages edited together in the published version by a team fronted by noted novelist Jonathan Lethem. Okay, technically we listened to the audiobook, but we did get through the entire thing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a goddamn minute. You're saying you didn't read the original Warren report for the JFK episode? And you didn't read the original works of most of the philosophers you covered in the last episode, but you read... Well, listened to. Fine. Listened to the entire audiobook of the sci-fi author's kind of sort of unhinged ravings. How long was this audiobook anyways? Like 50-something hours. I'm sorry, what was that number? 52 hours. 52 fucking hours? Yeah, but a lot was on 1.5 speed. Come on, what do you want from me? This is the record of a super smart, visionary dude who's susceptible to both magical thinking and rigorous self-examination. And he's unleashing his unparalleled imagination on the topic of determining what the fuck happened to him during a world-changing event that was essentially all in his head. The book details heroic internal analysis, periodic bouts of strict skepticism, and extended fugues of unexpected philosophical, pseudoscientific, highly conspiratorial mental synthesis. If I could have melted it down in a spoon and injected it directly into my veins, I would have. I'm just a human being, Dana. I can't resist a perfect temptation. Dick's own opinions on what happened to him varied widely and constantly. For example, at certain points, he seems to think of Valus as an extraterrestrial intelligence or some other sort of artificial construct, as detailed in this excerpt from one of his later novels. Emmanuel said, But what is Valus? An artificial satellite that projects a hologram that they take to be reality. Then it's a reality generator. Yes, Elias said. Is the reality genuine? No, I said it's a hologram. It can make them see whatever it wants them to see. Another really intriguing possibility that he entertained was that the Valus experience of 2374 was in fact designed by God to reawaken him to the fact that he was not the person he thought he was, and that the world, even the very year he believed himself to be in, was in fact an illusion. Briefly, what he came to believe in this respect was this. Valus had revealed to him that he was both a 20th century sci-fi author Philip K. Dick and simultaneously a person named Thomas, a Christian currently living in the 3rd century CE who was hiding in front and battling the Roman authorities. Ah, Jesuit. Come the fuck on. Yeah, I know. We'll get back to why this is weird and crazy, but first we want to talk about why it's interesting. His ideas along this line are elaborated further in Valus. Prior to that, during the interval in which he had experienced the two-world superimposition, he had seen not only California, USA of the year 1974, but also ancient Rome. He had discerned within the superimposition a gestalt shared by both space-time continua, their common element, a black iron prison. This is what the dream referred to as the Empire. He knew it because, upon seeing the black iron prison, he had recognized it. Everyone dwelt in it without realizing it. The black iron prison was their world. If you hear an echo of the Matrix in the phrase the Black Iron Prison, you're not alone. More later. For Dick, the Black Iron Prison was the entirety of the world as presented to our eyes. The powers that be, or the Roman Empire, or the god or gods of this world, conspired back in the 3rd century CE, or 
or AD if you went to school back in the 20th century. To create an artificial reality that would confuse the message and followers of Christ and convince everyone else that time was passing, that the world was developing, that technology was advancing, etc. Meanwhile, in reality, time would remain frozen in that same 3rd century AD. This led to his often repeated refrain, The empire never ended. So, Dick was, in his own words, from the exegesis, actually an early Christian in the 3rd century named Thomas. I was absolutely convinced that I was living in Rome sometime after Christ appeared, but before Christianity became legal. Back in the furtive fish sign days. And the way he could be this guy, but also simultaneously Philip K. Dick, 20th century sci-fi writer, was through his discovery that at some point around the year 300-something, an evil force changed our timeline to one that's running orthogonally. That means at right angles to the original correct time. Where, remember, it's still the 3rd century AD. Like, it's still the 3rd century right now, as you're listening to this. Again, in Dick's own words. The basic scientific discovery of my vast metaphysic, which I had written you about, was my postulation of two times at right angles to each other, which I called vertical, which we normally perceive, and horizontal, which is the axis along which the objects in Ubik regress. Ubik, a renowned novel that he wrote back in the 60s, long before the 2374 experience, eventually represented for him the good, divine, or alien force acting in our universe, and therefore he definitely suspected his 74 experience caused him to write Ubik in the past through orthogonal time. We know. It's a lot to take in. Just trust us. It's worth noting here that the period during which Dick experienced this transcendence... Transcendence, schizophrenic meltdown, rupture with reality... ...was also a truly wrenching time for both the country and the world. Recency bias causes many these days to presume that ours is the most fraught period in recent history, but that's completely inaccurate and really silly, and we'll address it in a future episode. But as an editor for The Exegesis noted... What else was going on in the world in March 1974? A jumbo jet fell out of the sky outside Paris, killing more than 300 people. An Arab oil embargo produced the most pronounced gasoline shortage ever in America, with cars lined up at stations for miles. Overshadowing even these unsettling events was the kidnapping in Northern California of the heiress of a millionaire publishing family by a band of domestic terrorists. The subsequent conversion of Patty Hearst to the radicals' cause sounds like a novel that Dick might have written in the 50s, or might yet write toward the end of his life. Most prominently, virtually all of Richard Nixon's immediate political circle in the White House, including his attorney general and chief of staff, were indicted in the Watergate scandal, which had reached critical mass. And the president himself was named a co-conspirator by a grand jury. To Dick and to the country at large, this was the moment when the Nixon presidency, five months before its end, was at its most toxic. The synopsis we just provided is a fair approximation of the dominant strains in the exegesis, as Dick struggles for most of a decade to figure out what happened to his entire reality a few months before Nixon's resignation. But it doesn't do justice to the sheer rigor and skepticism he subjects his own experience and conclusions to. He never actually settles on a single definitive reading of the experience. It's so much back and forth. And while we admire his struggle, trying to integrate it into a consistent realistic worldview, he also had plenty of wackadoo moments as when he mentions to a friend that he found a passage in the Gospel of John that fits in with his Valus worldview. But in the manner of so many deluded Mandela effect believers of the kind that we covered last time, Dick suggests that this passage was somehow added to the book, that it wasn't in the Gospel of John the many previous times he had read it. Okay, 
that's super cray cray. But to be fair, the man believed his brain had recently been pierced by God in the form of a pink light. But how exactly did that pink light experience connect up with all of this black iron prison Roman Empire Jesus stuff? Right. There's actually a pretty sensible, at least in Philip K. Dick terms, answer to that, but it involves diving into that alternate version of Christianity we mentioned earlier. These are long-dead sects whose ideas are, these days, heretical. But in the first few centuries after Jesus' death, that period when Christianity was growing from a few followers of a radical prophet into the dominant religion of the biggest empire in the Western world, these alternate Christianities, and their very different interpretations of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, were real and a viable alternative to what eventually crystallized into orthodoxy. Broadly, the concepts we want to deal with here are thought of as Gnostic Christianity. The meaning of the second word is obvious, but the first might require a little translation. Many of you will be familiar with the term agnostic, used for those who don't claim to know whether or not there is a god. In that term, the ag is negative, and the Gnostic refers to the idea of knowledge itself. So we can see that Gnostic Christianity would be the Christianity of those who have knowledge. In his course on Gnosticism, Professor David Brack notes that for the Greeks, gnosis was a specific kind of knowledge, different from the simple acquisition of facts. As I said, gnosis in ancient Greek means knowledge, but not just any kind of knowledge. It refers to personal, direct, immediate knowledge. I might say about another person, yes, I know Susan, and I could probably describe Susan and her life in some detail, but I probably would not be able to explain to you fully in words my knowledge of Susan. You really have to get to know Susan yourself if you want to really know Susan. That's the kind of knowledge Gnosis is. What the ancient Gnostics said is that they have, and they can offer to others, Gnosis of God. Direct, immediate, personal knowledge of God. Brack goes on to note that for thousands of years, most of what we knew about these folks came from what their theological enemies wrote about them. After all, the ideas of the Gnostics eventually lost out to what we now know as mainstream Orthodox Christianity. And the victors were hardly interested in preserving the thoughts of the vanquished. After all, to the mainstream church fathers, the Gnostics' approach was a dangerous misreading of the faith, so the less said about them, the better. Wouldn't want to lead any members of the flock astray with all of his fancy book learning. Of course, they preserved the writings of the Orthodox church fathers, though. And within those writings, they thus preserved those dudes' arguments against the Gnostic heresies, back when those were still a going concern. Which, of course, means that when later scholars wished to pierce together the intellectual history of Christianity, most of what they had available to reconstruct the ideas of the Gnostics consisted of church fathers quoting the Gnostics in order to argue against them. Those who listened to our episode on the Ismaili assassins, whose writings and theology have similarly been preserved only in the archives of the dominant Sunni Muslim sect, who hated the Ismaili's theological guts, will recognize this as a familiar problem for historians of minority religions. 
In any case, that was the state of scholarship on the Gnostics pretty much until the 1940s when a truly remarkable thing happened. We'll let this typically overwrought Discovery Channel documentary fill you in. In 1945, a remarkable discovery unearthed a large collection of lost Gospels and changed forever the history of Christianity. In Egypt, near a town called Nag Hammadi, a farmer and his companions found a sealed clay jar with an 1,800-year-old payload. The jar contained 52 separate texts with titles like the Acts of Peter, the Apocalypse of James, and the Gospel of Thomas. Were literal lost gospels mentioned by ancient writers but apparently buried after the Roman Emperor Constantine's consolidation of power in 325 AD. The full story is super weird. Two brothers dig up these absurdly ancient texts but then show them to basically nobody for years, during which time said dude's mom decides these books are some kind of ancient evil and therefore burns a few of the irreplaceable materials just to make sure she isn't cursed. Eventually, though, the books come to the attention of the Bible nerd scholarly world. Then, after a long series of political arguments and the rigors of translation, the first complete English edition only finally appears in the 1970s. So it's literally true that when you hear what we're about to tell you, you will have more knowledge of the origins of Christianity than even the most dedicated and knowledgeable scholar for the preceding 1800 plus years could possibly have attained. Isn't the gradual enhancement of knowledge through the careful work of generation after generation of painstaking conscientious experts super rad? It's not like the texts found in Nag Hammadi, the collection which is often shorthanded as the Gnostic Gospels, are intended to tell a coherent story, or even to line up with each other. They were written by different authors, each of whom was expressing his or her, but, let's face it, mostly his, ideas and interpretations of the life, teachings, importance, followers, and impact of Jesus. In this sense, though, the books share a great deal with the writings that came to form what we know as the New Testament, the origin text of Christianity as we know it today. Those who, like us, grew up attending church on the regular may never have noticed, but each of the familiar four Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, is its own complete coherent story, and each was clearly intended by its author to stand on its own. They weren't intended to be one quarter of what modern Christians have synthesized as the complete story. As scholars already knew, and as the Nag Hammadi find only served to elaborate, these were simply four of perhaps dozens or even hundreds of versions of the gospel. The word literally means good news, but in this context refers to the aforementioned life-death-resurrection narrative. And that, upon close inspection, even the four familiar stories actually don't perfectly align with each other. Take, for example, the resurrection of Jesus, which Christians see as the linchpin of the story. When Christ conquers death, emerges from the grave, and inspires his followers to go out and spread the good news, as it were. Well, though Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John agree on the broad outlines, it turns out they disagree a great deal on the details, as perhaps the preeminent scholar in the field, the inestimable Bart Ehrman, elucidates here. Jesus' death. What about differences in the accounts of his resurrection? Well, who went to the tomb on the third day? Did Mary Magdalene go alone, or did Mary go with other women? Depends which gospel you read. If with other women, how many of them were there? What were their names? And which ones were they? It depends which gospels you read. Was the stone rolled away before the women got to the tomb or not? What did they see in the tomb? 
Did they see a man? Did they see two men? Or did they see an angel? Depends which gospel you read. What were they told to tell the disciples? Were the disciples supposed to stay in Jerusalem to see Jesus? Or were they supposed to go to Galilee? Depends which gospel you read. Did the women tell anybody? Or were they silent about it? Depends which gospel you read. Did the disciples ever leave Jerusalem? Or did they immediately, did they never leave? Or did they uh, leave and go to Galilee? Depends which gospel you read. My conclusion, these are not reliable historical accounts. There are too many discrepancies. So, if there are numerous discrepancies when it comes to the most important part of the story, even among the four gospels that made it into the Bible, we might anticipate the version of Jesus' good news contained in the books that didn't make it, including the Nag Hammadi materials, would be pretty fucking wild. And we'd be right. There's no perfect place to dive into the fascinating mess that is Gnostic teaching on the reality of God, but let's start with the Gnostic secret gospel of John, which is totally distinct from the standard Orthodox gospel of John, and which, as Professor Brack points out, offers a complete overview of the Gnostic story of God and the creation. And trust us, your poorly remembered Bible school education isn't going to be particularly helpful. First off, the Gnostic view of God has a lot in common with the Hindu idea of Brahman, or the Buddhist concept of Nirvana. It's impersonal, unknowable. As Brack points out, it's barely even definable as a god. According to the Gnostics, God is a complex intellect consisting of numerous aspects or dimensions called eons. The true God may be complicated, but he is perfect and serene. Not so the God who created this world. He is imperfect and angry. The God who created this world is something of a mistake. And so our universe is tragically flawed. That's why we need salvation from the true God. The secret book, according to John, presents itself as a revelation from the Savior to the disciple and apostle John. When the text opens, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus have already happened. If you want to know God, be a better person, and find salvation, the secret book says you need to understand that you came from a God higher than the one you now know, and that the world in which we live is not how it should be. So who is this God that we came from, according to the secret book? The best way to think about the Gnostic God is to think about him as a vast intellect, a mind, similar to but much greater and more well intellectual than our own minds. And so just as our intellects are complex, full of thoughts and constantly active and creative, so too God is complex, full of thoughts called eons and constantly active and creative. And just as we find peace when our mind is still and quiet, so too God is perfectly still and quiet, even as he is active and creative. God is ultimately unknowable to human beings. There's a part of God, or better, the very heart of God. It's unknowable beyond our capacity to understand. And that's where the revelation of the Savior to John begins, with God's ultimate unknowability. He calls this ultimate unknowable God the invisible spirit. The invisible spirit really cannot be talked about at all, and yet the Savior says a lot about it. It's completely one, but otherwise it transcends anything we can say. It's unlimited, unfathomable, ineffable, immeasurable, incorruptible. It really even shouldn't be called divine because it's beyond our concepts of divinity. It's complete silence and complete rest. Now, below the ultimate unknowable chillaxer, there are other aeons or thoughts of God. The greatest of these is forethought. That is, in a sense, the unknowable God's reflections on itself. It's also called the barbalo. 
Nobody knows what that word means. Think of the barbelo as the feminine reflection of the masculine ultimate god. Then, this barbelo produced the self-originate when the divine spirit gazed upon her. This self-originate is also called the Christ. Which you may recognize as a title generally associated with the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Right, but there are a bunch of other thoughts of God that came out of the Barbelo eventually, all of which orbit around in a perfected harmony of pure thought. These included wisdom, or Sophia. The lowest eon, at some point in the eternal past, she decided she wanted to have her own thought. She didn't even consult with the divine daddy God. This thought turned out to be a misbegotten thing, something new. It was a bad thought. That thought's name? Yalda Baoth. Wisdom was horrified and cast her misbegotten thought child out of the divine realm. I think we should spare just a moment for the poor abandoned Y-baby, thrown into an empty, uncaring universe, shut out from the divine favor, his mom trying desperately to cover up the very fact of his existence. It must have been quite confusing, given that he had only just come into being. It reminds us of the whale who, for reasons it's too confusing to get into here, suddenly materializes out of nothing in midair over an Earth-like planet in the sci-fi humor classic, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Said whale then tries to make sense out of the strange world he briefly finds himself in before gravity completes its grim work. Hello! What's happening? Uh, excuse me, who am I? Hello! Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? What do I mean by who am I? Now calm down, get a grip now. Ooh. This is an interesting sensation. What is it? It's a sort of yawning, tingling sensation in my... my. Well, I suppose i better start finding names for things if I want to make any headway in what for the sake of what I shall call an argument I shall call the world. So let's call it my stomach. So, a yawning, tingling sensation in my stomach. Good. Oh, it's getting quite strong. Hey, what about this whistling, roaring sound going past what I'm suddenly going to call my head? That can be wind. Is that a good name? Oh, it'll do. Perhaps I can find a better name for it later when I find out what it's for, because there certainly seems to be a hell of a lot of it. Hey, what's this thing? This, let's call it a tail. Yeah, a tail. Hey, I can really thrash it about pretty good, can't I? Wow, wow. Hey, doesn't seem to achieve much, but I'll probably find out what it's for later on. Now, have I built up any coherent picture of things yet? No. Oh, hey, this is really exciting. So much to find out about, so much to look forward to. I'm quite dizzy with anticipation. Or is it the wind? Hey, there really is a lot of that now, isn't there? And wow, what's this thing suddenly coming towards me very fast, very, very fast, so big and flat and wide. It is a big, wide-sounding word like ow, 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 round, round, ground. That's it, ground. I wonder if it'll be friendly. That's two hitchhikers' references in two episodes. I fear for the future. Don't tell her, but there's another one coming later. Also, seriously, if y'all haven't, that series is just the greatest. Read it. Anyway, Yaldi took a rather different tack than our late lamented whale, not simply and sweetly puzzling through his fate, but rather using the dim and fractured memories he carried with him of the perfect, harmonious divine realm to fashion his own replica out of the crude matter of the universe he found himself in. Only because he was surrounded again with nothing but crude matter, instead of the primo uncut god stuff, his copycat universe is full of failure, imperfection, and corruption. I can see where this is going. The universe he made is our universe, isn't it? Yes, indeedy. And that means that Yaldaba Oath is, to the Gnostics thinking, the god of this world. Wait, hold on. Sunday school was a long time ago, but I clearly remember that the god of our universe is pure and good, and it's humans who fucked everything up. 
Yes, that is indeed the view of essentially all of the mainstream Abrahamic monotheistic religions, that is, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. God is good and has used his messengers, be they Old Testament prophets, Jesus, or Mohammed, to reach out and try to help his flawed and rebellious human children return to his righteousness and goodness and therefore turn away from their own sinful natures, which through Adam and Eve they brought upon themselves. Oh, right. Abel, snake, cast out of Eden. Rings a bell. Well, to the Gnostics, this view had it all wrong. After all, even if you account for human sinning, how could a pure, just, and righteous God have created a universe in which so much evil abounds? And I'm not just talking about the evil that humans inflict upon each other, as horrendous as that can be. I'm talking floods, famines, earthquakes, plagues, the constant suffering and death of creatures throughout the world as a simple function of the pitiless lion-eat-lamb logic of the food chain, and the ever-present threat that a large hunk of space rock could smack into our planet, rendering all of this moot in an instant, dinosaur-style. Incidentally, this is an issue that dates back to ancient times, and is commonly known as the problem of evil. There's an entire branch of theological apologetics called theodicy, dedicated exclusively to the question of how a purely good God can exist in the universe where there's so much bad shit going down. So this is a tough problem for believers in an omnipotent, all-good God to address but not for the Gnostics. See, their explanation for why we have a universe with so much suffering and chaos is simple. It's because we, and the universe we inhabit, were created by a flawed and evil god. Slow down there. Gnosticism is a type of Christianity. And Christianity derived from Judaism, correct? Yes. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. There's pretty much universal agreement on that point among both believers and skeptics. But Jews worship the god who created this universe. Yep. Yahweh. Miss Jehovah, if you're nasty. So where do the Gnostics get off deciding that the god that Jesus' own Jewish people worshipped was actually some deranged evil deity? The answer has something to do with the aforementioned problem of theodicy. After all, if you can't reconcile the idea of a perfect and just God with the evil in the world, why not just presume that it's not the perfect just God who made the evil universe, but rather some other asshole? It's also important to understand that, instead of seeing Jesus as the son of the God who created this universe, the Gnostics saw him as something very different, which we'll cover shortly. The rest of the secret gospel of John goes through some other major events in the Bible, each time giving them a Gnostic twist. In this version, the real divinities trick Yaldi and co. into transferring some of the divine essence that he got from wisdom when he was created, in turn, into some humans that he's fashioned, as this divine spark would help bring those humans to life. To the evil god's horror, this results in the spirit humans being more powerful than their creator. So he quickly fashions bodies out of crude matter and imprisons the spirit humans in there so they won't threaten him. In this way, the Gnostics also explain exactly why there are two completely distinct separate creation stories in the book of Genesis. Chapters 1 and 2. Seriously, look it up. For Gnostics, the first creation is of the spirit humans, and the second is of the crude material bodies, only because the deluded followers of Yaldabaoth, that is, Moses and the ancient Jews, are the ones who wrote the book, they got everything wrong and made Yahweh slash Yaldi out to be the hero and the humans into the source of evil. Note that this view from the Gnostics contains elements of the later anti-Semitism that eventually came to dominate many threads of Christian argument in the first century CE, and which eventually provided cover for the anti-Semitic horrors of everyone, from the Tsars to Martin Luther to Hitler. Similar revisionist storytelling casts wisdom and not a snake in the role of the one who convinces Adam and Eve to eat from the Tree of Knowledge, even though Yaldi has told them not to. 
And the purpose, of course, is to help the humans understand the divine spark that's in them so they learn to worship the true God instead of the God they know, the God of this world. Okay, so the Gnostics believed they were divine sparks stuck inside a gross material bodies, and they got that way because an evil demigod corrupted the divinity that was placed into them by the agents of the true unknowable God, who is not the God of this universe. What the fuck does this have to do with Philip K. Dick getting a pink light through his brain exactly? Just give me a few more minutes and a digression to another Gnostic book, The Gospel of Judas. Judas has a gospel? I thought he was a bad guy who betrayed Jesus to the Romans. Yeah, that's the case in the Bible. But remember, the Gnostics didn't accept the Gospels we know. They had many other versions of these stories. And in at least one of them, Judas was the hero. Here again, we turn to the ridiculously interesting Bible scholar Bart Ehrman to explain. We do know of about 40 Gospels that are not in the New Testament. We know of about 40 Gospels, including now the Gospel of Judas. And the Gospel of Judas is one of the earliest of these 40. So it's a very old gospel, not as old as the New Testament gospels, but nonetheless very old. And even more significant, it's an ancient Gnostic gospel. Some people have within them a spark of the divine, and the Gnostic religion is designed to set them free. Some of us are here, even though this isn't our home. And so divine sparks have been entrapped here in this disastrous creation. And the way to escape this entrapment is by acquiring the secret knowledge of who they really are. The divine sparks need to know who they are. This knowledge is not available to everybody. It's esoteric knowledge. It's secret knowledge. It's mysterious knowledge. And it's only for insiders. Where does this knowledge come from? In fact, you can't acquire this knowledge by looking around the world and figuring out because this world is a disaster and the knowledge is not embedded in this world. The knowledge has to come to you from the divine realm. You need a redeemer from the divine realm to come down to give you the secret knowledge that you need, the gnosis that can set you free from the entrapment to your body. You need to escape your body, and that happens when you acquire the secret knowledge. And so that's what the Gnostic systems were all about. Jesus is the one who comes down from heaven to reveal the truth that can make you free. This gospel is not going to emphasize the death and resurrection of Jesus as the way to salvation. It's going to emphasize the importance of this, of this secret revelation. Jesus tells Judas that he will be a ruler over all the other disciples and that, in fact, he will surpass all the disciples for an interesting reason. One of the key verses in this entire gospel, Jesus tells Judas, you will surpass them all for you will sacrifice the man that bears me. Jesus, while he's here giving his revelation, is also in a human body. But that human body has to be shed so that he can return to the Pleroma. Just as those who are trapped spirits here need to shed their body to return to the Pleroma. And how is it going to happen that Jesus will return to the Pleroma? He has to shed his body, which means his body has to die. Judas turns him over so that his body will be crucified so he can escape and return to his heavenly home. 
so you will surpass them all, for you will sacrifice the man that bears me. This gospel does not end with Jesus being crucified. Because for this gospel, that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter that Jesus died on the cross because he didn't die on the cross for the sins of the world. He wasn't raised bodily from the dead because the whole point is to escape the body. The resurrection of the body is offensive to this author. The idea of the resurrection of the body is the idea that you're going to live eternally in your body. But for this author, the body's the problem. You need to escape your body. And so Jesus, too, escapes his body. And so his body doesn't get raised from the dead. He returns to his pleroma, having given the revelation that's needed for people in order to escape this world. The key point of this text, things are not what they seem or what most Christians think. Once again, a Gnostic has turned a Bible story on its head. Judas is not the betrayer of Christ, but rather the only one who truly understands him and why he's here. Judas handing Christ over to the authorities to be crucified is Judas doing precisely what Jesus wanted him to do, freeing him from the crude material body he's encumbered with so he can return to his true home, the divine realm. I see where this is going. That's right. Jesus is, as Mr. Ehrman can tell you, not the son of this universe's God, but rather the son of the true, original, unknowable God. Technically, he's the emanation from the Barbalo that was called Christ. But just as importantly, in Gnostic theology, some, but definitely not all, human beings share this divine spark with Christ. Again, we should reiterate here that just as with the canonical Gospels, there's no reason to think that the person named in the title had anything to do with writing the book itself. As nearest scholars can tell, the Gospel of Judas probably dates back to the 2nd century AD, long after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as the other named apostles. And as we mentioned, there are numerous other Gospels and Testaments purporting to be written by various other biblical icons, including the Gospel of Thomas, one of the most important alternative texts and one that we touched upon in our QAnon episode, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Gospel of Philip, etc. None of these were written by the people in the titles. And by the way, as near as scholars can tell, neither were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But all of them were written by believers in one or another version of Christianity, and those authors used the names of the apostles and the other prominent followers of Christ to bolster their claims that their views were in fact the views that were held by those who were closest to Jesus in the first place. Obviously, this was because these authors wanted their views to become the orthodox view, though we know that in many cases things didn't turn out that way. So having covered that, we finally come to the part that connects these alternative Christianities with our hero Phil. A religious seeker throughout his life, PKD really latched onto the Gnostic view, which started becoming far more prominent and popular as the Nag Hammadi texts were translated into various modern languages. As noted earlier, this was largely complete by the 1970s, which is coincidentally the same time that he experienced the whole Valus thing. In addition to accepting the idea that the true God was hidden from this evil world, and that the God of this universe was insane or a monster, PKD was very attracted to the notion that the path to salvation lay not in the sacrifice of Christ to atone for the sins of mankind, as mainstream Christianity would have it, but rather he accepted the Gnostic notion that the true way to be saved was to parse the hidden information in the sayings of Jesus, which could be used to ignite the divine spark inside of some humans and allow them to transcend the mundane, wicked world of matter. I see. Valus was a pink bolt of Jesus straight to the brain. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess you could put it that way, but it's not really very 
poetic when you say it like that. Fine. Yeah. So this Gnostic concept of salvation through accurate understanding of hidden meanings really kicked PKD into high gear exegesis-wise. We already heard that he believed that the Valus event revealed his son's hidden and life-threatening hernia. And it also revealed that he was not actually... Or at least not simply. Philip K. Dick, sci-fi author in the 20th century, but also a third-century Christian named Thomas. That he was literally both people simultaneously. And that the time stream that he and everybody else, including me and you and everyone listening to this episode, is experiencing literally up to this moment was created by the Yaldaba-Othish rulers of this world to keep the Empire standing and the Black Iron Prison Black Iron Prisoning. So he had received all of this information straight into his brain, and he chewed over what all of it meant for the eight years until his death in the never-ending exegesis. We should probably note that while Dick was throughout his life obsessed with Gnostic Christian and Jewish as well as Hindu and other religious concepts, you could hardly characterize him as a believer in any of the mainstream versions of those faiths. In fact, he considered Christianity as it was practiced to be part of a heretical tradition that had been allowed to win out over the true Gnostic version of the faith by Yaldi, the Empire, the Black Iron Prison, and what have you, to keep people from receiving the true message of salvation that was sent by the Barbalo and Christ and wisdom from the true heaven. You get the idea. Or, to use his own words, I can say I am a Buddhist, or even the Buddha, that in Brahminist terms... I have an avatar in me. I am an Orphic, a Neoplatonist, a Christian, a Hermetic. All these statements are true. And also, I have to some extent formulated my own system. I have seen God, but it was not God. It was more. And in addition, long before the Valus event, he was plagued by the notion that the world as presented to his senses wasn't fully real in the way most of us take for granted. All my life, I felt it is not that something truly real lies behind it. Thus, over my entire adult life, I have prepared myself to encounter an imminent God emerging from within this world. Viewed this way, it is evident that without realizing it, I have always been seeking God within or behind the walls and objects, the surfaces of this world. My whole conception of the world, reality, is radically different from that of other people. Which is, of course, a throwback to the idealistic philosophers we discussed last time. Finally, and this is really what makes the guy so fascinating, as much as he generally hewed to his semi-demi-gnostic explanation for reality and what had happened to him, he never quite accepted it as... gospel. Pardon me. For example, he also mulled over the possibility that maybe we humans created this whole Black Iron Prison orthogonal time streams Messiah in Pink Light situation for ourselves. That perhaps some future versions of humans decided to play a game where they would trap themselves in an artificial world just to see if they could work their way out. And the only clue they gave themselves was the veilless spirit messiah, whatever it was, to remind them of the unreality of the world they had created. So, if this is the case, we are just voluntarily imprisoned souls of some future human or perhaps totally alien beings who think puzzling through simulations of this kind, i.e. our human lives and all of reality as we understand it is a fun way to pass the time. So we wiped our own memories and trapped ourselves in this artificial world with only Valus to help us figure out the situation, and we did all of this just to see who gets to take number one in the interdimensional reality escape rankings. Holy shit! This guy's taking Roy off the grid! This guy doesn't have a social security number for Roy! Apparently. So the reality we all appear to experience is actually kind of a future slash extraterrestrial slash interdimensional escape room thingy? If so, I'm going to fuck up their Yelp rating. Staff not helpful. No instruction provided. Left to fend for ourselves. 
Zero out of five would not recommend. Or in another way, as Dick puts it in the exegesis, if the final paradox of the maze is that the only way you can escape it is to voluntarily go back in into it, then maybe we are here voluntarily. We came back in. We who are here, or at least some of us, were once in it before, in my case as Thomas, but we, or I, came back in and am here now. Thus my voluntary return to the maze has already happened, and 2374 was true release, and hence for these reasons came in the form of restored memory, the loss of forgetfulness. Then I did not solve the maze this time. I had already solved the maze by voluntarily coming back in as PKD, and I remembered in 274. Thus my salvation was assured not by what I did in this lifetime, but by this lifetime as such. Uh, Jesuit? Yeah, Dana? Are we pretending we understood what he said there? Yes, we talked about this. If we pretend to get it, the audience will think we're super smart. Oh, shit, right. Um, give me a second. Oh, yes, Jesuit. That thing PKD said about reality was so obvious as to be nearly trivial. Yes, I'm glad we agree on how clear that explanation was. Carry on, Miss Unicorn. <clears throat> Anyway, he also entertained at certain points perhaps his most mundane, if admittedly still pretty out there, explanation for the Valus events. Maybe somehow as a science fiction writer he had been inadvertently drawn into the ongoing Cold War, and therefore the pink light was actually the result of a Soviet telepathy experiment, again quoting the exegesis. It is equally probable that in March 1974, an actual concerted telepathic transmission effort was made in Leningrad, perhaps to test out and see if I was telepathically sensitive. This attempt, if indeed it took place, was more of a failure than a success, inasmuch as I think what came as a result of this was my developing an instinctive antipathy toward the Soviets, under the perhaps correct impression that they'd made an effort to improve, i.e. coerce my ideas. In another version, he considered that the pink light came from the past, that it was providing him with retrieved knowledge, and that it had been triggered by an extraterrestrial signal that was from some sort of techno-gnostic messiah thing. Of course, he notes, This presumes a link between Earth and <coughs> heaven. I think there is. It's at this point that one of the editors of the exegesis gives voice to what you all must be considering right about now. It's impossible to ignore Dick's obvious and sometimes self-confessed psychopathology. In other words, that the guy often appears, well, crazy. It's tempting to collapse Dick's mystical realizations into this craziness, as if Valus were nothing more than a symptom of Dick's alleged schizophrenia, temporal lobe seizures, or whatever. But we must be more careful and more sophisticated here. Dick himself thought poignantly and deeply about these and related issues, and came to a conclusion that many other thoughtful people, from William James and Henry Bergson, to Aldous Huxley, have come to, namely, that the brain may be a kind of filter, transmitter, or reducer of consciousness. That may sound familiar from our discussion of psychedelic drugs last time, that apparently what psychedelics do is not so much blow open the doors of perception, as Aldous Huxley and Jim Morrison would have you believe, but rather they deactivate various portions of our brains that are normally tasked with regulating our perceptions. When something... Drugs, meditation, or a shattering mental pink light switches off the sections of our brains that filter out reality, we can be overwhelmed by the experience. And then, again, quoting this exegesis editor, Other forms of consciousness and reality, many of them cosmic in scope and nature, can and often do shine through. Trauma, we might say, can lead to transcendence. 
But, and this is a key point, the transcendent state cannot be reduced to or explained by the traumatic context. As with the material brain and its relationship to the irreducible nature of consciousness, the trauma does not produce transcendence. It lets it in. This could sound like hand-waving by someone who wants PKD's experience to mean something profound. But again, it's precisely this never-ending re-examination of the experience, an effort probably doomed from the outset, because as our editor noted, the experience is not reducible to a concrete explanation, that makes Dick's fiction and nonfiction so riveting. Also, if you're somehow thinking that Dick never considered that all of this might just be a spasm by a damaged mind, here's another bit of the exegesis. I had been partially psychotic for years, and in 374 I broke down totally. I was taken over by my own SF universe. Schizophrenia, with religious and paranoid coloring, of the ecstatic type, a sense of the cosmic, vast mystical forces, with me in the center, like a titanic psychedelic drug trip. And now I exhaust myself trying to explain 374. I was lithium toxic and had a schizophrenic breakdown. My mind monitors my missile anamnesis as a clue to prior psychosis. I need romance, adventure in my life. The AI voice is a special kind of hallucination, one of wish fulfillment and need due to loneliness, emotional starvation and grief and ill use. It was a mercy. I was so unhappy and afraid, so filled with anticipatory dread. Well, damn it, I don't regret it. It made a barren, fearful life meaningful and bearable. This is one of the key passages to the whole exegesis. Dick is concretely differentiating himself from the hordes of delusionals convinced that they have received pure, unadulterated truth from the beyond, the aliens, the almighty, etc. Readers skeptical about Dick's sanity after reading the exegesis should pay careful attention to this passage, where he explores the possibility that the events of 2374 were a schizophrenic hallucination. In interrogating the veracity of his visions, Dick examines his own psychological makeup, and analyzes what was going on in his life at the time. Simply put, crazy people do not question their own sanity like this, at least as a general rule. I find this one of the most moving passages of the entire exegesis, because in it, Dick places the cosmic scope of his vision in relation to the lack of love and excitement in his own life, and goes so far as to suggest that this loneliness may have given rise to delusions of grandeur. Such honesty is refreshing and points to the sincerity that underlies Dick's belief in the authenticity of his experiences, as well as his desire to determine whether those experiences were generated internally as a manifestation of his psyche or externally by an encounter with the divine. So now, ideally, all of us understand where Dick was coming from when he contemplated his 2374 experience. Yes, in the sense that we're all as confused as he seemed to be. And also, it's hopefully obvious how engaged he was with some of the topics we covered in our previous episode. For example, he was deeply interested not just in religion, but philosophy. Remember how Plato believed in a world of pure forms? Also, for that matter, do you recall the simulation hypothesis beloved by Elon Musk, among others, which we also covered last time? Well, check out this quote from one of Dick's letters. If I were to say to you, the universe which we perceive is a hologram, you might think I had said something original until you realized that I had only updated Plato's metaphor of the images flashed on the walls of our cave, images which we take to be real. Platonic forms become the solid world from which our simulated reality is projected, but the principle is the same. Of course, Dick had no patience for the rigor of academic philosophy. He preferred to make huge intuitive leaps, not worrying overmuch about the little details. As an exegesis editor notes, though, the value of Dick as a philosopher is his rapid-fire ability to produce concepts and surprising associations. Continuing, 
if Dick had known more, it might have led to him producing less interesting chains of ideas. Moreover, Dick liberally borrowed concepts from the various Eastern religions and philosophies we talked about last time. He was attracted, for example, to Buddhism's idea of stripping away what we take to be the real world to expose that world's unreality. He took this to mean that we would see the pure information underpinning everything in the universe at its most fundamental level. There's also something of the Buddhist obliteration of the self in the idea of his other, perhaps truer existence as a Christian named Thomas in the 3rd century. At times you get the impression that he thinks of his existence as a 20th century sci-fi writer as something ephemeral, rather like the butterfly in the dream of Zhuangzi, the Taoist philosopher. Seriously, if you didn't listen to the previous episode, it's only going to get more confusing from here. We mentioned earlier that his obsessive writing about 2374 eventually not only colored all of his subsequent novels, but also caused him to view his previous output as having been influenced by that experience, even though those books were published before the event happened. Again, this is because he believed that all of our reality was an illusion that became us a trick by Yalda Baos, the evil false god of this universe, to trick people and keep them from accepting the message of Christ, who was sent by the real unknowable god and our time stream, which he referred to as orthogonal time. That is, again, time at right angles to genuine time. Could be caused to move in a forward or reverse direction, and allowed causes in the future to have effects in the past. He really, genuinely believed this, and it gave him a sense of meaning not just for his later life, but for his entire bibliography. Had my 374 experience not occurred, I might suppose my 26-year writing theme to be vain, empty, and foolish. I now, for the first time, see my writing as half one and my 374 experience as half two of a total experience. What happened in 374 was that the real, the thrusting through world which I intuited, proved actually to be there. I never anticipated such a tremendous payoff, breakthrough, despite the fact that the corpus of my writing is a map, an analysis, and a guide. The 26 years of writing without 374 is a map of nothing, and 374 without the body of writing is conceptually inexplicable. And furthermore, my writing isn't messages smuggled into this spurious world to tell us our situation. No, we are in a prison, and my writing is messages smuggled out. We are trying through such as my writing to contact outside help. And 2374 was that outside help answering the messages regarding our condition found in my writing. So, let's take a look at some of these incredible novels, both pre- and post-74, and see what they can tell us about reality as it was understood by Philip K. Dick. Before we get started, we are going to spoil the shit out of these books and talking about them. However, the ideas and the characters' imperfect muddling through of the various worlds they inhabit are the real core of the PKD experience. So even what you know what you're getting into before you read them, you really still won't know what you're getting into. Do yourself a favor and pick up any of these books sometime soon. 
We're only going to talk about those earlier books that the man eventually re-examined through the 2374 lens, which means we're not really going to talk much about the man in the high castle, his famous foray into an alternate history where the Germans and Japanese won World War II and took over the United States, even though it's amazing. And we're not really going to talk much about Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the novel that was loosely adapted into the legendary Blade Runner, except to mention that it's a great encapsulation of his interest-slash-fear that it would be essentially impossible for a person to determine whether he was in fact human or simply a sufficiently advanced android, or AI. Instead, we're going to focus on a few books that, while great on their own, end up having a profound effect on his later philosophy, and we'll start with perhaps the book that comes up most often in the exegesis, 1969's Ubik. The best way to ask for beer is to sing out Ubik. Made from select hops, choice water, slow age for perfect flavor, Ubik is the nation's number one choice in beer, made only in Cleveland. Perk up pouting household surfaces with new Miracle Ubik, the easy to apply, extra shiny, non stick plastic coating. Entirely harmless if used as directed. Saves endless scrubbing, glides you right out of the kitchen. First, a plot summary. A businessman named Glenn Runciter operates a company that specializes in deploying inertials. That is, people with the ability to disrupt the powers of telepathic and precognitive agents who are often employed to conduct industrial and other espionage in the far distant future year of 1992. So in other words, you hire Runciter's people if you're worried that your competitors are going to use psychics to steal your secrets. It's important to remember that PKD believed that psychic phenomena were real, if exceedingly rare, and that they were becoming more common in the population during his lifetime. Anyway, our main character, Joe Chip, works for Runciter and is sent on a high-paying, super-secret mission on the moon that turns out to be a setup by Runciter's biggest business rival, a guy who deploys the telepaths that Runciter's people are sent to block. There's a huge explosion. Runciter is killed. Chip and the team barely escape alive. However, when they return to Earth, they discover that things are getting weird. Everyday items seem much older than they should. They're confronted with ancient models of cars, home appliances, etc. And weirdly, Runciter's face and voice start appearing in various places, including on the money. Worst of all, members of the team are, one by one, withering away and dying. Desperate for an explanation, Joe finds messages left by Runciter that inform him that, in fact, the boss is the only one who survived the explosion, and that all the rest of them are already dead. Runciter is trying to keep them alive in a sort of frozen, suspended animation, but some other force is gradually stalking them down and killing them. They eventually figure out what's happening and why the world is regressing to the past, etc. But the main thing we're going to want to focus on here is that Runciter tells Chip to find and use a spray-on substance called Ubik. That's spelled U-B-I-K. Somehow, Ubik protects Joe from the effects that have killed the other inertials. And while there's an explanation for how it was created within the novel itself and eventually Joe settles down in his simulated frozen existence as Runciter's advisor, with a protective lifetime supply of Ubik, the novel's closing chapter makes it seem as if nothing is quite so cleanly wrapped up. First, there's the fact that Runciter, who again is apparently within the novel, still alive and in the real world, discovers that Joe Chip's face is appearing on his money all of a sudden, just as Runciter's face did in the inertial's suspended animation reality. But the other thing relates to the novel's convention of introducing each chapter with an advertisement for some novel use of the product Ubik. We played one at the beginning of this section, and we'll play another now. Pop tasty Ubik into your toaster, made only from fresh fruit and healthful all-vegetable shortening. Ubik makes breakfast a feast. Put zing in your thing. Safe when handled as directed. 
The final commercial of this kind in the book is significantly different in tone. Let's see if you can hear why we say that. I am Ubik. Before the universe was, I am. I made the suns, I made the worlds, I created the lives and the places they inhabit. I move them here, I put them there. They go as I say, they do as I tell them. I am the word, and my name is never spoken, the name which no one knows. I am called Ubik, but that is not my name. I am. I shall always be. Wait, Ubik is supposed to be God? Maybe. The novel leaves it unclear. But as you can imagine, the fact that he had written Ubik years before his 74 experience served as proof positive to Dick that the true unknowable God was communicating through his writing in the orthogonal time stream trying to share something about how the Messiah's message was smuggled into the world through innocuous means, like a spray can that protects the user from the destructive effects of time that's moving in the wrong direction. You're saying Phil wrote this book, which is centered around the idea of backward-flowing time, and then years later had an experience of being contacted by this Valus thingy, which then told him that time was, in fact, flowing in the wrong direction somehow, in the reality he experienced. Yeah, I can see why he thought his books from the past were made to explain the future. Yeah, it's fucking weird, right? I mean, you can see how this shit would blow PKD's always fragile sanity into a still more questionable state. Next up, we have A Scanner Darkly, one of Dick's bleakest and most autobiographical novels, and one that he worked on both before and after the Valus incident. The story centers around Bob Arctor, just one among a houseful of drug addicts, albeit one who also happens to be an undercover police officer tasked with spying on precisely the users and dealers who make up Bob Arctor's social circle. To facilitate this double life and keep his identity as a cop secret, Arctor wears a device called a scramble suit whenever he visits the police station. It projects a constant stream of elements from a million different people's faces over the wearer's own. Again... Dick didn't care too much about how his technological MacGuffins worked, as long as they accomplished his fictional goals. And when Bob is at the station, he goes by the name Fred. So while Fred is busily reporting away on the activities of Bob's druggy friends, he's also trying to figure out where one specific dealer, Donna, gets her supply of a particularly dangerous psychedelic called Substance D. It so happens, of course, that Donna is Bob's beloved girlfriend, and he himself is pretty badly strung out on said Substance D you can probably see where this is going. The double life leads to a complete split in the Bob-Fred personalities, such that Fred doesn't recognize Bob in the police surveillance tapes he reviews, and Bob doesn't recall his life as a policeman at all. Eventually, both personalities crumble into a full nervous breakdown. Fred's superiors realize their star cop is a substance D addict who's lost touch with reality, and they send him to rehab. Only that's yet another double cross as Bob meets his beloved Donna in the rehab center and discovers that she, in fact, is also a secret cop. That all of this was set up to get Bob slash Fred into this facility where the police believe the flower that produces Substance D is secretly being cultivated. Bob slash Fred, now a completely broken shell of a man, is given a new identity as Bruce, and the novel ends with Bruce finding the pretty blue flower, i.e. the evidence and in his shattered mind, planning to give it to his friends, the police. Even before the Valus incident, this was a highly personal book, based on the author's own foray into drug addiction and the community of broken people that formed around him during the period 1970-72. to 72. After Nancy... Wife number four, if you're keeping track. ...and their daughter left, Dick felt he was falling into schizophrenia and suicidal ideation, and so sought to distract himself with other people. 
As Sutton notes in Divine Invasions, he was willing to go to any lengths to find companionship. He would consent to any terms. He opened his sense of Anisha House first to friends, then to all comers. He offered them drugs, beer, music, his mind, wit, kindness, and a broken heart. He craved affection and embraced chaos. Surrounded by drunks, addicts, and illicit substances, Dick's world descended into its profoundest period of madness and dislocation. Sutton chronicles how Dick's ever-increasing amphetamine use was accompanied, as one might expect, by an increased paranoia that the house and its occupants were under constant surveillance by one or more federal or state agencies. Paranoia being a common side effect of amphetamine abuse. There's more, of course. The deaths of several friends from this period before the book was even published, a stay by Phil in a psych ward at Stanford. But it all ended up reflected in the split personality of Bob and Fred in Scanner. So it's obvious that the main character's split personality is in some way a channeling of Dick's self-diagnosed schizophrenia during this period. But after 2374, the book began to take on a completely new set of meanings in the exegesis. The first of which is, of course, that it presaged the dual identities of PKD and 3rd century Thomas, which we've discussed before. Again, for Dick, this served as proof that his past books were in some sense inspired by the subsequent Pink Light event. But later in the exegesis, the book takes on an even loftier meaning, as in this quote. An incredibly eerie thought came to me just now after reading over a typed page in which I described the Black Iron Prison. Remember, that's his shorthand for the Mad God's plot to trap us in a fake timeline while the 3rd century Roman Empire continues in the real one. It's occluding us in such a way that we can't even tell we're occluded. It's the damaged mind trying unsuccessfully to monitor its own damage. What piece of writing does this sound like that I've published? Scanner, of course. So, Ubik is a statement about orthogonal time. Scanner Darkly is about how our realities are split, and our understanding of ourselves is distorted by a universal conspiracy. What's next? Well, God himself, both the good and bad versions, in the form of my personal favorite of PKD's novels, 1965's The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. Wow, that title is a mouthful even for sci-fi. Wait till you hear the plot. In the distant future year of 2016... Here we go again. A 1960s sci-fi writer failing to put his fiction far enough in the future, producing some laughable series of assumptions that for present-day people sounds completely ridiculous. Ahem. In 2016, humanity has managed to completely destroy the planet's ecosystem, leading to massive dislocations caused by extreme weather, eventually leading many, if not most, people to retreat into virtual fantasy worlds where they can live out richer, more expansive, meaningful lives, manipulating avatars, and avoiding their real-life problems. Still think he was way off? Actually, that sounds, if anything, a little too accurate. Of course, in this version, there's a climate catastrophe so great it's essentially scorching the surface of the planet and making it impossible to go outdoors. So the world's governments hold lotteries that send the winners to remote colonies on the other planets of the solar system, ensuring that overpopulation doesn't doom the lucky few remaining in their climate-controlled cities on Earth. Our main characters are Leo Bolero, the owner of Perky Pat Layouts, Inc., and Barney Mayerson, his number one precog. That is, a person with a limited ability to see the future. Perky Pat is a sort of future Barbie doll, and the creation of clothes, accessories, vehicles, and rooms for her and her boyfriend Walt has become the largest industry in the solar system. Barney uses his precog abilities to predict which Perky Pat accessories are going to be in vogue next year. Which might seem a little weird until you learn that there's an illicit but widely used drug called Can-D. That's spelled C-A-N hyphen D. 
the effect of which is to cause the user to project him or herself into Pat and Walt's world, experiencing their doll-sized existence as a fully realized, completely convincing reality simulation, if only for a limited time. Given that life on the outer planets is miserable, consisting of subsistence farming and life in sterile communal life support spaces, Colonists tend to spend all their available cash buying candy and scaled-down replicas of the appliances, clothes, stereos, and other things that remind them of the good old days of Earth in the 20th century, all so they can escape from reality for a little while. Jesus, that's bleak. Yeah. So the plot of the book is pretty complicated, but it revolves around the sudden return of wealthy adventurer Palmer Eldritch. Think Richard Branson, only within a mechanical arm, artificial eyes, and metal teeth whose ship crash-landed on Pluto after a years-long journey to another star system. Leo, the owner of the Perky Pat Layouts Company, learns of a rumor that Eldritch has brought with him a new drug called Chew-Z. That's Chew with a hyphen Z at the end. That lets users enter a realistic hallucinated world, just like candy, but it's longer-lasting, more addictive, and works without the need for the doll layouts. Leo senses a threat to his whole enterprise and works with Barney, who loses the lottery and gets shipped off to Mars, in a quest to kill Eldritch and put an end to Choosey altogether. But here's where it gets super duper weird. Both Barney and Leo are eventually exposed to Choosey, and they discover not only that the drug allows you to have a completely realistic simulated experience of whatever reality you can imagine, but that each simulation will last as long as you want it to. Meaning that by choosing extremely long simulations with only brief journeys back to your body to consume more of the drug and resume the lucid dreaming, Eldritch is, in some sense, selling immortality. I bet you there's a catch, though. Oh yeah, a big one. It turns out that Eldritch is able to appear at will in these imagined worlds and indeed take control of them, with one or another person in these unreal realities suddenly sorting the artificial teeth, eyes, and arm of Eldritch as the tip-off to his presence. Boy, does that sound just like the way the agents in the Matrix are able to ghost in and out of other bodies. Yes, indeed. As the novel progresses, and there are just a ton of twists and turns we're glossing over, it becomes clear to Leo and Barney that either Eldritch became something like a god during his stay in the other star system, or that some godlike being possessed and obliterated the human Eldritch. And then it gets really, really, really deeply fucked up. As when Leo, in the midst of a choosy nightmare, finds himself walking around an artificial moon in what appears to be the future. He meets two beings, and they show him a statue memorializing the fact that in their past, Leo heroically killed Palmer Eldritch, the enemy of the soul system, according to the plaque. Leo, suspicious that they are merely hallucinations brought on by the drug, offers his hand to shake. He reached his hand out to the first Terran. I'd like to shake hands with you, he said. Alec, the Terran, extended his hand, too, with a smile. Leo's hand passed through Alec's and emerged on the far side. Hey, Alec said, frowning. He at once, piston-like, withdrew his hand. What's going on? To his companion, he said, This guy isn't real. We should have suspected it. He's a, what do they used to call them? From chewing that diabolical drug that Eldritch picked up in the prox system? A chooser, that's what. He's a phantasm. He glared at Leo. I am, Leo said feebly and then realized that Alec was right. His actual body was on Luna. He was not really here. But what did that make the two evolved Terrans? Perhaps they were not constructs of Eldritch's busy mind. Perhaps they alone were genuinely here. Wait, so in the middle of his drug-induced vision, our guy sees two other hallucinations and comes to the conclusion that they might actually be real, while he is a hallucination. It's a hell of a book. 
By the end of it, we're in a situation where the evil godlike manifestation represented by Palmer Eldritch has maybe been contained or destroyed, or maybe it's triumphant and quickly infecting all of reality. It's super great. Check it out. Phil wrote this back in 65, nearly a decade before 2374. But its weird views of an evil god and a multi-layered network of shared hallucinations gives his eventual exegesis study of it plenty to chew on. At certain times, he thinks the novel is a warning about the sinister machinations of Yaldaba Oath and co., the evil gods of this world, and how they're fabricating the black iron prison of reality to deceive and distract us, just as Eldritch and Chuzi were designed to do. But he also holds, at different points, a starkly different view. Sometimes he seems to believe his book accurately describes the messiah force coming from the real god to our world, but just misconstrues it as an evil instead of a good thing. From the exegesis. When I recently reread Stigmata, I saw it for what it was. A penetrating, acute, and exhaustive study of the miracle of transubstantiation, simply reversing the bipolarities of good and evil. For you non-Catholics, transubstantiation is the belief that the bread and wine offered by the priest during Mass literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. Only, you know, here it's choosy turning everybody into Palmer Eldritch. Since all of them were consuming hosts of the same deity, they all became the same deity, and their separate or human identities were abolished. They literally became the deity, all of them, one after another. Seems like he's kind of trying to have his cake and eat it too, no? His book is either a warning about the bad guy god, or it is to be read as, for some reason, negative metaphor for the positive experience of the actions of the good guy god and his emissary. Yeah, I never said he was consistent, just really interesting. But of course, he didn't just reinterpret his previous books after 1974. He also wrote new ones. But before we tackle those, let's pull on the final reality thread we plan to cover here, one that speaks deeply to PKD's obsessions. Much of what Dick is dealing with in his exegesis concerns the highly subjective experiences he's had, in terms not only of explaining what exactly happened to him in 74, but also how such idiosyncratic material may or may not be supposed to affect others. In other words, when Dick learned of the Black Iron Prison, the pink light of Velas, the idea of orthogonal time, was he simply trapped in a malfunctioning brain? Or had some deeper, undefined part of his consciousness made genuine contact with the unknown? To try to answer that, we're going to have to tap into the modern theory of consciousness. We all experience it. So, what the fuck is it exactly? And can something that takes place in one brain be said to have an entirely local, chemical explanation? Perhaps, is there something deeper about the universe that points to consciousness as a fundamental, even universally shared, yet underexplained facet of reality? Or, as Dick himself phrased it in the exegesis, referring to the problem of consciousness and its relationship to the universe as a vast brain. This vast brain must be an organizing principle, a system of linking. How, if at all, does this system exist independently from the constituents which it links together? The same question has long been debated about the relationship between a human mind and its brain. Can the mind exist independently from the brain? Jesus, I think we're getting into sitar music, college stoner, philosophy territory again. No, come on, trust me, we're on real, if rather out there, territory here. So let's start out by trying to define what we mean when we call something conscious. In another way, what do we mean when we say that we have a self? 
We'll start with V.S. Ramachandran. He's one of the foremost neuroscientists working today, and here's his explanation from a brief tour of human consciousness. What exactly is meant by the self? Its defining characteristics are fivefold. First, continuity. Second, and closely related, is the idea of unity or coherence of self. Third, is a sense of embodiment or ownership. We feel ourselves anchored to our bodies. Fourth, a sense of agency, what we call free will. Fifth, and most elusive of all, the self is capable of reflection, of being aware of itself. Okay, that seems pretty accurate to what most of us experience as self. But of course, that doesn't really tell us anything. For example, you may have heard the expression, a brain in a vat. For a fairly robust discussion of this topic, let's return to Jim Baggett's book, A Beginner's Guide to Reality, which we also touched on last episode. Suppose there exists an evil scientist who is able to remove your brain from your skull and keep it alive in a vat of nutrients. I'm afraid he disposes of your body. He is also able to preserve intact your optic nerve, your olfactory nerve, your gustatory nerves, and the nerves leading to your somatic sensory and auditory cortices. All these nerve endings would ordinarily be connected to the sensory organs in your body, but our evil scientist connects them instead to the output terminals of a vast computer. The nerve endings from your motor cortices are likewise connected to the computer's input terminals. All the neuronal pathways in your brain are preserved. All your short and long-term memories are retained, together with your sense of identity and self. So make no mistake, the brain in the vat is you. The computer is programmed to run a virtual reality simulation of the world that you know. The simulation produces output signals corresponding to the nerve stimulations required to reproduce this world in your brain and thence in your mind. These electrical signals are fed into your brain, which is actually now sitting quite comfortably in a vat. However, you interpret these signals in your mind as the world around you. The evil scientist has erased from your mind all memory of the operation he has performed. As far as you are concerned, nothing untoward has happened to you. Your life goes on as it did before. This devilish brain-in-a-vat scenario is a philosophical concoction and has become most closely associated with the contemporary philosopher Hilary Putnam. He wrote, it can also seem to the victim that he is sitting and reading these very words about the amusing but quite absurd supposition that there is an evil scientist who removes people's brains from their bodies and places them in a vat of nutrients which keep the brains alive. So, could you be just a brain in a vat? If all your knowledge of the physical world around you is derived from your perceptions and your perceptions were being manipulated to give you the impression of reality, then how would you know otherwise? Of course, you're already thinking of the Matrix here, but there are a bunch of other great fictional portrayals of this general idea. For example, in the Hitchhiker's Guide series, former galactic president and supreme ego monster Zaphod Beeblebrox is forced to enter a device called the Total Perspective Vortex, designed to destroy the mind of sentient beings by demonstrating to them precisely how insignificant they are in relation to the full majesty of the universe. A few seconds later, he emerges. Hi. Beeblebrox, you're... Fine, fine. Could I have a drink, please? You've been in the vortex? You saw me, kid. And you saw the whole infinity of creation? The lot, baby. It's a real neat place, you know that? And you saw yourself in relation to it all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what did you experience? What did you experience? What did you experience? It just told me what I knew all the time. I'm a really great guy. <laughs> Didn't I tell you, baby? I am Zaphod Beeblebrox. 
Zaphod survives only because someone has placed him in a simulated reality in which he is actually as important to the universe as his subjective experience tells him he is. There's a similarly awesome laying out of the problem of perception and reality in the John Carpenter low-budget sci-fi classic Dark Star, when a crew member of a spaceship decides to use some of these ideas to argue a sentient bomb into stopping its detonation sequence. In other words, all that I really know about the outside world is relayed to me through my electrical connection. Exactly! Why, that would mean that I really don't know what the outside universe is like at all for certain. That's it! That's it! Intriguing. I wish I had more time to discuss this matter. Why don't you have more time? Because I must detonate in 75 seconds. Now, Bomb, consider this next question very carefully. What is your one purpose in life? To explode, of course. And you can only do it once, right? That is correct. And you wouldn't want to explode on the basis of false data, would you? Of course not. Well, then, you've already admitted that you have no real proof of the existence of the outside universe. Yes, well... So you have no absolute proof that Sergeant Pinback ordered you to detonate? I recall distinctly the detonation order. My memory is good on matters like these. Of course you remember it, but, but all you're remembering is merely a series of sensory impulses which you now realize have no real definite connection with, with outside reality. True, but since this is so, I have no proof that you are really telling me all this. That's all beside the point. I mean, the concept is valid no matter where it originates. Hmm. So if you detonate in... Nine seconds. You could be doing so on the basis of false data. I have no proof it was false data. You have no proof it was correct data! I must think on this further. All of these musing entities experiencing consciousness and wondering about what it all means could conceivably have no connection to the physical world, and yet they would still have the idea of a self. But for the moment, let's assume that this is not the case. Let's take it that our consciousness exists in physical bodies that more or less correspond to the bodies we perceive through our senses. We return to Ramachandran, who invites us to consider how incredibly complicated the human brain is. The brain is made up of 100 billion nerve cells, or neurons, which form the basic structural and functional units of the nervous system. Each neuron makes something like 1,000 to 10,000 contacts with other neurons, and these points of contact are called synapses. It is here that exchange of information occurs. Based on this information, it has been calculated that the number of possible permutations and combinations of brain activity, in other words, the number of brain states, exceeds the number of elementary particles in the known universe. Which is awe-inspiring to contemplate. But the issue is, we don't really have an idea of how the firing of those neurons produces the idea that I am me or that you are you. Trying to pin down what consciousness might mean is a real pain in the ass. If you remember our discussion last time, the modern problem of consciousness, what is today known as the mind-body problem, was kicked off by René Descartes. Since you hopefully listened to last episode, you know that he's the guy that proved we can know we exist because we are thinking, even if all of our other senses are lying to us. Well, Descartes also pointed out that there appear to be completely distinct worlds of mental and physical processes. As usual, we're going to let somebody qualified explain this for us. Descartes believed that he could cast doubt on the existence of his body, but not the existence of his mind. The fact that he could doubt one but not the other told him he must be made of two different kinds of stuff. This view, known as substance dualism, says the world is made of both physical stuff and mental stuff. Substance dualists say that minds are a separate non-physical substance that cannot be reduced to or 
explained in terms of physical stuff like brains. And in this view, some things like God are pure mind, and other things like rocks are pure matter. But humans, well, we're kind of special. We're the only kind of thing that combines both stuffs into one being, both body and mind. What's more, these two substances appear to interact with each other inside of us. This is called interactionism. When I make up my mind to do something, I have the power to compel my body to do as I please, to get up off the couch and make myself a nice PB&J, for example. What's more, my mental states seem to have the ability to affect my physical states, even against my will. You ever notice how many people who are grieving or under a lot of stress, for example, often get physically sick? Likewise, our bodies also appear to be able to affect our minds. Like when you're so hungry, you just can't focus on what your teacher is saying at all, or how a pure physical pleasure, like having a good cuddle with your cat, can pull you out of a bad mood. Interactionists say that what's going on with these experiences is that our two substances, minds and bodies, are interacting with each other. But if you think about it, this is actually a pretty puzzling proposition. How can a purely mental thing have any effect on a purely physical thing? The puzzle of how minds and bodies can interact with each other is known as the mind-body problem. This is the problem that makes us wonder, how can my body have a separate entity called a mind lurking inside of it, controlling it, and being controlled by it? What would tether my mind to this body in particular? Why couldn't my mind just go running off on its own, or take a dip into other bodies to see what it's like in there? Many modern philosophers of mind, seeing no way to solve the mind-body problem, have felt compelled to abandon substance dualism altogether. Some are happy to be physicalists, but others are convinced that there are some parts of the human experience that simply can't be boiled down to brains. So as we just heard, many researchers these days are purely physicalists. They say essentially that minds are what brains do. Dr. Ramachandran definitely falls into this category, and we'll meet other proponents later. But let's spend a bit of time contemplating the problems with a purely physicalist solution. And no, this isn't coming from Descartes or George Barclay. Last episode. Or anyone else who's basing his or her argument on the idea of God and an immortal soul. Rather, we're going to consider secular perspectives that have proved to be a real pain in the ass for pure physicalists with regard to the mind-body problem. And much of that pain was delivered via a particular ass-kicking paper. Coincidentally published in the key PKD year of 1974. By the influential philosopher Thomas Nagel. It's called, What is it like to be a bat? We're going to take a few minutes to talk about this essay, because if you're anything like us, it will be a real eye-opener on topics you've never thought about in your life. To start, Nagel establishes a provocative thesis. Without consciousness, the mind-body problem would be much less interesting. With consciousness, it seems hopeless. That is, the only reason we even think there is such a thing as the mind-body problem is because we're conscious. And yet our best scientific reductionist tools have been really shitty at explaining why our brains, which seem to be highly complex biomechanical chemical processing engines, should happen to produce such a thing as consciousness at all. But still, we're conscious. It is, as Descartes pointed out, the only thing we can know for certain. So why is that brute fact so hard to pin down through the scientific tools that have served us so well in other areas? Nagel begins his truly novel argument this way. The fact that an organism has conscious experience at all means, basically, that there is something it is like to be that organism. This seems intuitively obvious, and we know to a near certainty, based on rigorous experiments, that consciousness is not exclusive to humans. Other mammals definitely share some aspects of what we mean by the term. The idea of a self as distinct from the rest of the world, or even from others who are, like us, members of the same species, etc. So then, Nagel asks us, if consciousness is purely reducible to mental states, then is it possible for us to know what it is to be a bat? 
His point is not, as he is at pains to note, asking us to consider what it would be like to fly or hang upside down or eat insects or be nocturnal, yada yada. Those imaginative questions only ask what it would be like for you or me to be a bat. What he's asking is, what's it like for a bat to be a bat? Wait, wait, what? Yeah, that confusion is kind of his point. After all, while bats share the vast majority of our evolution, they're profoundly different from humans. To quote the man himself, Even without the benefit of philosophical reflection, anyone who has spent some time in an enclosed space with an excited bat knows what it is to encounter a fundamentally alien form of life. So the question is, what is it like for a bat to be a bat? Note that you can't simply answer this by describing the neural pathways that, for example, allow a bat to use a sort of biological radar to sense and eat flying insects. And as we noted before, it's not a matter of imagining ourselves doing bat things. It's asking, what is it like when a bat does bat things? Oh, shit. Now that you mention it, I have no fucking idea. And this is Nagel's point, that for all of the many wondrous advances that neuroscience has made in past decades, it has come no closer to being able to give us a model that would convey batness the way that we all intrinsically experience humanness. Which means, he suggests, that potentially... One might also believe that there are facts which could never ever be represented or comprehended by human beings, even if the species lasted forever, simply because our structure does not permit us to operate with concepts of the requisite type. So while a secular philosopher like Nagel may not accept the God-did-it hypothesis, there remains in his argument space for some sort of not-yet-identified, potentially non-physical in the normal sense, and therefore potentially immaterial, mind. This undefined mind would be an important part of consciousness that is connected to, but apart from, the three pounds of structured jelly that is the human brain. While provocative, this perspective runs counter to the tremendous strides that the purely physical explanation of mental states has made over recent decades. As Dr. Ramachandran's work demonstrates, there's a lot of rigorous evidence on the purely physical side. That is, the brain appears to be the entire seat of human consciousness. The best evidence being the fact that a variety of conditions that affect the brain can completely change a person's subjective experience. From the man himself. Any or all of the different aspects of self can be differentially disturbed in brain disease, which leads me to believe that the self comprises not just one thing, but many. Like love or happiness, we use one word, self, to lump together many different phenomena. For example, if you stimulate your right parietal cortex with an electrode, you will momentarily feel that you are floating near the ceiling, watching your own body down below. You have an out-of-body experience. The embodiment of self, one of the axiomatic foundations of yourself, is temporarily abandoned. And this is true of all those aspects of self. Each of them can be selectively affected in brain disease. He also hints that, in the end, deep empirical analysis may lead to the conclusion that there is not actually much of a difference between the self and others. That in a Buddhist or Hindu sense, the unitary self is an illusion. There's lots more fun stuff in Ramachandran's work. For example, he points to deliberate lying as one of the best tests for whether a person is capable of truly advanced mental function, as lying involves not only modeling someone else's mind, but also reflecting on one's own consciousness. He connects the most notably distinct primate-only mental abilities. That is, the skills we seem to share only with our closest ape relatives. To the profusion in great apes like us of so-called mirror neurons. His research indicates that the overabundance of these in human brains relates directly to our experience of consciousness, especially insofar as we are more advanced in these areas compared to other primates. 
In fact, he argues, this discovery offers a tantalizing idea of how human culture came to achieve such breathtaking complexity. One recent discovery that has been made by researchers in Italy, in Parma, by Giacomo Rizzolati and his colleagues, is a group of neurons called mirror neurons, which are in the front of the brain, in the frontal lobes. Now, it turns out there are neurons which are called ordinary motor command neurons in the front of the brain, which have been known for over 50 years. These neurons will fire when a person performs a specific action. For example, if I do that and reach and grab an apple, a motor command neuron in the front of my brain will fire. If I reach out and pull an object, another neuron will fire, commanding me to pull, my, pull that object. These are called motor command neurons that have been known for a long time. But what Rizzolati found was a subset of these neurons, maybe about 20% of them, will also fire when I'm looking at somebody else performing the same action. So here's a neuron that fires when I reach and grab something, but it also fires when I watch Joe reaching and grabbing something. And this is truly astonishing because it's as though this neuron is adopting the other person's point of view. And it's also almost as though it's performing a virtual reality simulation of the other person's action. Now, what is the significance of these mirror neurons? For one thing, they must be involved in things like imitation and emulation, because to imitate a complex act requires my brain to adopt the other person's point of view. So this is important for imitation and emulation. Well, why is that important? Well, let's take a look at the next slide. So how do you do imitation? Why is imitation important? Mirror neurons and imitation emulation. Now, let's look at culture, the phenomenon of human culture. If you go back in time about 75 to 100,000 years ago, let's look at human evolution. It turns out there's something very important happened around 75,000 years ago, and that is there's a sudden emergence and rapid spread of a number of skills that are unique to human beings, like, like tool use, the use of fire, the use of shelters, and of course language, and the ability to read somebody else's mind and interpret that person's behavior. All of that happened relatively quickly. Even though the human brain had achieved its present size almost three or 400,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, all of this happened very, very quickly. And I claim that what happened was the sudden emergence of a sophisticated mirror neuron system, which allowed you to emulate and imitate other people's actions. So that when there was a sudden uh, accidental discovery by one member of the group, say use a fire or a particular type of tool, instead of dying out, this spread rapidly horizontally across the population or was transmitted vertically down the generations. So this made evolution suddenly Lamarckian instead of Darwinian. In Darwinian evolution is slow, it takes hundreds of thousands of years. A polar bear to evolve a coat will take thousands of generations, maybe 100,000 years. A human being, a child, can just watch its parent kill uh, another polar bear and skin it and put the skin on its body, fur on the body, and learn it in one step. What the polar bear took 100,000 years to learn, it can learn in five minutes, maybe 10 minutes. Right? And then once it's learned this, it spreads by, in geometric proportion across the population. And this is the basis of this imitation of complex skills, is what we call culture and is the basis of civilization. Now there's another kind of mirror neuron, which is involved in something quite different, and that is, there are mirror neurons, just as there are mirror neurons for action, there are mirror neurons for touch. In other words, if somebody touches me, my hand, a neuron in the somatosensory cortex, in the sensory region of the brain, fires. But the same neuron, in some cases, will fire when, when I simply watch another person being touched. So it's empathizing the other person being touched. So most of them will fire when I'm touched in different locations, different neurons for different locations, but a subset of them will fire even when I watch somebody else being touched in the same location. So here again you have neurons which are involved in empathy. Now the question then arises, if I simply watch another person being touched, why do I not get confused and literally feel that touch sensation? 
merely by watching somebody being touched. I mean, I empathize with that person, but I don't literally feel the touch. Well, that's because you've got receptors in your skin, touch and pain receptors, going back into your brain and saying, don't worry, you're not being touched. So empathize by all means with the other person, but do not actually experience the touch, otherwise you'll get confused and muddled. Okay, so there's a feedback signal that vetoes the signal of the mirror neuron, preventing you from consciously experiencing that touch. But if you remove the arm, you simply anesthetize my arm. So you put an injection into my arm, anesthetize the brachial plexus, so the arm is numb, there's no sensations coming in. If I now watch you being touched, I literally feel it in my hand. In other words, you've dissolved the barrier between you and other human beings. So I call them Gandhi neurons, or empathy neurons. <laughs> and this is not in some abstract metaphorical sense. All that's separating you from him, from the other person, is your skin. Remove the skin, you experience that person's touch in your mind. You've dissolved the barrier between you and other human beings. And this, of course, is the basis of much of Eastern philosophy, and that is there's no real independent self aloof from other human beings inspecting the world and inspecting other people. You're, in fact, connected, not just via Facebook and Internet. You're actually quite literally connected by your neurons, and there's whole chains of neurons around this room talking to each other, and there is no real distinction distinctiveness of, of your consciousness from somebody else's consciousness. And this is not mumbo-jumbo philosophy. It emerges from our understanding of basic neuroscience. So in essence, the development of neurons capable of not only mimicking, but in fact providing likely explanations for the current and even future behavior of other individuals, then powered a new phase of evolution via a shared trove of experience and preference that could be passed from one individual to another. And this concept of mirroring others then eventually developed what we think of now as the human self or consciousness. Again, Ramachandran. What sets us apart from other mammals, including other primates, is a set of circuits. These structures are for consciousness what chromosomes and DNA were for heredity. Know how they perform their individual operations, how they interact, and you will know what it means to be a conscious human being. So, how did this happen? Well... Scientists are still figuring that out, but in Ramachandran's book, The Telltale Brain, the evolution of human consciousness resulted when earlier, more rudimentary abilities that allowed rats to simulate and respond to representations of external objects, like cats, developed further. There emerged a second brain, a set of nerve connections to be exact, that creates representations of representations, a higher order of abstraction, by processing the information from that first brain into manageable chunks that can be used for a wider repertoire of more sophisticated responses. But still, even the good doctor himself notes that explaining the lived, felt experience of consciousness is a real quandary and requires more research. So that's our neuroscientist. Let's return to the philosophers now, and two current heavyweights of the consciousness-slash-self-debate who will now battle it out for your enjoyment. First, we'll define our terms. We're going to hear arguments about the so-called hard problem of consciousness. And what exactly is said problem? To answer, we'll hear briefly from one of our debaters, whom we'll introduce in a moment. The hard problem of consciousness is the problem of how physical processes in the brain give rise to the subjective experience of the mind and of the world. If you look at the brain from the outside, you see this extraordinary machine um, an organ consisting of 84 billion neurons that fire in synchrony with each other. When I see visual inputs come to my eyes, photons hit my eyes, they send a signal that goes up the optic nerve to the back of my brain. It sends neural firings propagating throughout my brain, and eventually I might produce an action. 
From the outside, though, I look like a complicated mechanism, a robot. This is how science might describe me from the objective point of view. But there's also a subjective point of view. There's what it feels like for the agent who is seeing the scene. When I see you, I see colors, I see shapes, I have an experience from a first person point of view. There's something it's like to be me. And this is the conscious experience of seeing. It's part of the inner movie of the mind. This inner movie has many, many dimensions. It has the dimension of vision. It has the dimension of sound, like a normal movie, but it also has touch and taste and smell. It has emotions. It has thought. It has a sense of one's body. All of this is subjective experience. And it's one of the most familiar facts in the world that we have this subjective experience. But it's also one of the most mysterious. Why is it that these physical processes in the brain should produce subjective experience? Why doesn't it go on in the dark without any consciousness at all? No one right now knows the answer to this question. Put it that way, that is a really interesting question. Glad you agree. So let's hear next from somebody who doesn't think it's a problem, like, at all. In this corner, bald, bewhiskered, and arguing for a purely material explanation of the epiphenomenon of consciousness, Dan the Man Dennett. The mind is what the brain does. It's a material organ, just as your lungs and your heart are material organs, and we have to explain all the goings-on in the mind in terms of the interactions of those material parts, those 86 billion neurons that are attached to each other and sending all those signals. Because what happened is theorists gave up dualism long ago, but they kept part of Descartes. They decided there was still a place in the brain where it all came together for the show. It was just somewhere in the brain. So this is this imaginary place, the Cartesian theater. So the light comes in, it exposes the film. The film is then uh, developed and dried off with a little fan, and then it's projected onto a screen, ta-da-ta-da, where there are two homunculi in there to look at the screen and to appreciate the show. We're jumping in here to clarify that in the video that accompanies this audio, he's showing an image of a bunch of little people who are displaying a movie to other little people inside a human head. These are the homunculi in an artist's rendition. They represent the mind in a dualistic view of the mind-body problem, which is the thing that Dennett is making fun of. No use having a screen unless you have an appreciator. You've got to have an audience, an inner witness, to go along with the inner show. There is no inner show. And there is no single inner witness. You know, we've looked in the brain, just in case you wondered. There is not a little man in the brain. Well then, here's the moral of the story. The work done by the homunculus in the Cartesian theater must all be distributed in both space and time within the brain. That's what cognitive science is working on. What lies in the middle it's what we might call a virtual self. It's a self made of information. It's a data structure which can handle information. That yourself 
is the center of narrative gravity. It's an abstraction. It's, if you like, a user illusion, but a very important one and a very useful one. Giulio Giorello, who wrote an article, an interview with me in Corriere della Sera some years ago, and the headline the next day was, Si, abbiamo un'anima, mai fatta di tanti piccoli robot. Yes, we have a soul, but it's made of lots of tiny robots. <laughs> I thought, yes, that's it. That's right. We have a soul made of information. Some people really hate this idea. My old friend Jerry Fodor says this. If, in short, there's a community of computers living in my head, there'd also better be somebody who's in charge, and by God, it had better be me. If you still have an emperor in your theory of consciousness and experiencing something, then you haven't even begun. You've simply postponed the theory because you've still got the conscious emperor in there. Now, some people, for instance, David Chalmers, a uh, uh, well-known critic of mine, says just the opposite. He says if so, there we have the purely physicalist interpretation. And in this corner, with a mane like a proud lion and a disarmingly friendly Australian accent, as you heard a few minutes ago, David Chalmers. Chalmers is probably the leading proponent in modern philosophy of the most popular alternative approach to Dennett's. Which is not to say that he has a solid theory. He just thinks Dennett's nothing but physical explanation leaves a lot to be desired. So the easy problems are, you know, how is it, for example, we discriminate information in our environment and respond appropriately? How does the brain integrate information from different sources and bring it together to make a judgment and control Behavior. How indeed do we voluntarily control behavior to respond in a controlled way to our environment? How does our brain monitor its own states? These are all big mysteries. And actually, neuroscience has not gotten all that far on some of these, uh, of these problems. They're, um, they're all quite difficult. But in those cases, we have a pretty clear sense of what the research program is and what it would take to explain them. It's basically a matter of finding some mechanism in the brain that, for example, is responsible for discriminating the information and controlling the behavior. And although it's, uh, it's pretty hard work finding the mechanism, we're on a path to doing that. So a neural mechanism for discriminating information, a computational mechanism for the brain to monitor its own states, um, and, and so on. So for the easy problems, they at least fall within the standard methods of the brain and cognitive sciences. We're basically, we're trying to explain some kind of function and we just find a mechanism. The hard problem, what makes the hard problem of experience hard is it doesn't really seem to be a problem about behavior or about functions. You could explain, you could in principle imagine explaining all of my behavioral responses to a given stimulus and how my brain discriminates and integrates and monitors itself and controls, you can explain all that with, say, a neural mechanism, and you might not have touched the central question, which is why does it feel like something from the first person point of view? That just doesn't seem to be a problem about explaining behaviors and explaining functions. And as a result, the usual methods that work for us so well in the brain and cognitive sciences, finding a mechanism that does the job, just doesn't obviously 
apply here. We're going to get correlations. We're certainly finding correlations between processes in the brain and bits of consciousness, an area of the brain that might light up when you see red or when you, uh, when you feel pain. But nothing there seems yet to be giving us an explanation. Why does all that processing feel like something from the inside? Why, does it, why doesn't it go on just in the dark, as if we were giant robots um, or zombies without any subjective experience? From that point, people react in different ways. Someone like Dan Dennett says, ah, it's all an illusion or a confusion and one that we need to, uh, to get past. And I, mean, I respect that line. I think it's a hard enough problem that we need to be exploring every, uh, every avenue here. And one avenue that's very much worth exploring is the, the view that it's an illusion. But there is something kind of faintly unbelievable about the whole idea that the data of consciousness here are an illusion. To me, they're the most real thing in the, uh, the universe, you know, the feeling of pain, the experience of vision or of thinking. So it's a very, um, it's a very hard line to take the line that Dan Dennett takes. He, took, he wrote a book, Consciousness Explained, back in the early 90s, where he tried to take that line. It was, very, it was a very good and very influential book. But I think most people have, have found that at the end of the day, it just doesn't seem to do justice to the phenomenon. To be so fair, who's right? We really don't know. But Ramachandran's work makes us think that there's a good chance that as neuroscience advances, it may provide increasingly robust responses to the Chalmers side of the debate, even if Dennett's current conclusions don't end up proved in all of their particulars. No matter which view you find more convincing, it's really kind of weird to think about. And philosophers just keep piling up the strangeness. Take, for example, the concept of qualia. To quote the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, these are the introspectively accessible phenomenal aspects of our mental lives. In less jargony terms, qualia are the experience of what it is like for a conscious being, that is a self, to have an experience. Take, for example, the qualia of red. Wait, wait, wait. Are you drifting back into the, well, how can we really know if the color you see is the same color I see, stoner boy? No, no, no. Trust me, this is heady stuff. So certainly we can agree that the physical characteristics that render something as red exist in the real world. That is, it's the tendency of an object to reflect light at a certain wavelength that our eyes then perceive as red. But in reality, the entire existence of redness is completely dependent on human minds, as near as we can tell. Wait, you just acknowledged it was a wavelength thing. Yeah, in a sense, but think about it. The light that reflects off a red delicious in the produce aisle hits the back of your eye, and then rods and cones respond, stimulating chemicals that then turn into neural signals in your brain. But as Bagot points out, this is where we're stuck. There's no redness in the photons of light, in the stimulation of your rods and cones, or in the stimulated parts of your brain. The uncomfortable conclusion here is that red is not a thing that exists in reality outside of your brain. In other words, the qualia of red is something your brain is superimposing on whatever we can call reality. The same goes for music, smells, texture. In the absence of minds to perceive them, it appears they wouldn't exist. Or to quote Ramachandran, You can't have free-floating sensations or qualia with no one to experience them. And you can't have a self completely devoid of sensory experiences, memories, or emotions. This sense of qualia as an inexplicable yet inextricable aspect of what we experience as true consciousness was put forward as an argument against the philosophical idea of physicalism or the idea that everything that exists, including mental states, can be explained by matter. The classic philosophical experiment here is called Mary's Room and was originally formulated in 1982 by Frank Jackson. Here it's retold via a cool animated video on YouTube. Anyone who thinks this doesn't know Mary 
She is the leading expert on the perception of color. She knows all about wavelengths, about the retina of the eye, and about how the brain processes visual stimuli. She knows all of the scientific facts and every single detail of what happens when we see color. There is one thing, though. Mary herself has never seen a colored object. Neither a red tomato, nor the blue sky. Ever since she was born, she has been in a room where there is no color. Her clothes are black and white, and her hair is black. She has only experienced black, white, and gray. She has learned everything she knows about the world and about color perception from reading books. But here's the kicker, as articulated by Jackson. What will happen when Mary is released from her black and white room or is given a color television monitor? Will she learn anything or not? Think about it. Kind of tough to say, right? While Chalmers has seen this concept as a cornerstone of his argument that reducing consciousness to physical phenomena is deeply flawed, as you might expect, Ramachandran has a solid counterargument based on his experience working with a patient who has a particular brain disease that illuminates how a normally functioning brain works. His example is an experimental subject who is both colorblind and a synesthete. That is, one of a rare group of people who see certain mental phenomena, musical notes, numbers, etc., as being associated with a specific sensory experience like color, smell, taste. The number two might have a certain color, musical tone, or scent to these folks. You get the idea. What Ramachandran and his collaborators note is that while the subject sees only shades of gray from his optic nerve, his synesthesia causes him to see various colors in association with numbers that he describes as Martian colors. Because he's never experienced them as part of the everyday black and white world he actually sees through his eyes. Thus, Ramachandran believes, neuroscience has addressed the Mary's room conundrum. The answer is simply that Mary, leaving the black and white room with normal vision, will acquire a new ability, not new knowledge. But Bagot, our beginner's guide to reality, dude, points out there are some problems with this purely material approach to explaining qualia and other niceties of consciousness. If logic demands that you reject the reality of secondary qualities of physical objects, and again, that's everything from color to taste, smell, texture, etc., you have to question the reality of their primary qualities, too. After all, if you're going to reject all of the information about the physical world delivered to your mind by your senses, and using your senses is the only way you can gain information about the physical world, then surely that means rejecting everything. A prominent scientist who also takes a Chalmerian-Bagadian line is Donald Hoffman, who in the argument you're about to hear takes a stance that consciousness first is the only approach to the universe that makes any sense. But the relationship between brain activity and conscious experiences is still a mystery. Why? Why have we made so little progress? I think we've simply made a false assumption. Once we fix it, we just might solve this problem. Let's begin with a question. Do we see reality as it is? I open my eyes, and I have an experience that I describe as a red tomato a meter away. As a result, I come to believe that in reality, there's a red tomato a meter away. I then close my eyes, and my experience changes to a gray field. But is it still the case that in reality, there's a red tomato a meter away? I think so. But could I be wrong? Could I be misinterpreting the nature of my perceptions? Well, neuroscientists tell us that about a third of the brain's cortex is engaged in vision. 
When you simply open your eyes and look about this room, billions of neurons and trillions of synapses are engaged. Now, this is a bit surprising because, to the extent that we think about vision at all, we think of it as like a camera that just takes a picture of objective reality as it is. Now, there is a part of vision that's like a camera. The eye has a lens that focuses an image on the back of the eye, where there are 130 million photoreceptors. So the eye is like a 130 megapixel camera. But that doesn't explain the billions of neurons and trillions of synapses that are engaged in vision. What are these neurons up to? Well, neuroscientists tell us that they're creating in real time all the shapes, objects, colors, and motions that we see. It feels like we're just taking a snapshot of this room the way it is, but in fact, we're constructing everything that we see. We don't construct the whole world at once. We construct what we need in the moment. But neuroscientists go further. They say that we reconstruct reality. So when I have an experience that I describe as a red tomato, that experience is actually an accurate. Reconstruction of the properties of a real red tomato that would exist even if I weren't looking. Now, why would neuroscientists say that we don't just construct, we reconstruct? Well, the standard argument given is usually an evolutionary one. Those of our ancestors who saw more accurately had a competitive advantage compared to those who saw less accurately, and therefore they were more likely to pass on their genes. We're the offspring of those who saw more accurately, and so we can be confident that, in the normal case, our perceptions are accurate. So the idea is that accurate perceptions are fitter perceptions; they give you a survival advantage. Now, is this correct? Does natural selection really favor seeing reality as it is? Fortunately, we don't have to wave our hands and guess. Evolution is a mathematically precise theory. We can use the equations of evolution to check this out. We can have various organisms and artificial worlds compete and see which survive and which thrive, which sensory systems are more fit. So, in my lab, we have run hundreds of thousands of evolutionary game simulations with lots of different randomly chosen worlds and organisms that compete for resources in those worlds. Some of the organisms see all of the reality. Others see just part of the reality, and some see none of the reality, only fitness. Who wins? Well, I hate to break it to you, but perception of reality goes extinct. In almost every simulation, organisms that see none of reality but are just tuned to fitness drive to extinction all the organisms that perceive reality as it is. So the bottom line is, evolution does not favor. Vertical or accurate perceptions; those perceptions of reality go extinct. Now, this is a bit stunning. How can it be that not seeing the world accurately gives us a survival advantage? That is a bit counterintuitive. What the equations of evolution are telling us is that all organisms, including us, we do not see reality as it is. We're shaped with tricks and hacks that keep us alive. So the idea is that evolution has given us an interface that hides reality and guides adaptive behavior. Evolution has shaped us with 
perceptual symbols that are designed to keep us alive. We better take them seriously. If you see a snake, don't pick it up. If you see a cliff, don't jump off. They're designed to keep us safe, and we should take them seriously. But that does not mean that we should take them literally. That's a logical error. Another objection. Now, there's nothing really new here. Physicists have told us for a long time that the metal of that train looks solid, but really it's mostly empty space with microscopic particles zipping around. There's nothing new here. Those microscopic particles are still in space and time. They're still in the user interface. So I'm saying something far more radical than those physicists. When I have an experience that I describe as a lion or a steak, I'm interacting with reality, but that reality is not a lion or a steak. And here's the kicker. When I have a perceptual experience that I describe as a brain or neurons, I am interacting with reality. But that reality is not a brain or neurons, and it's nothing like a brain or neurons. And that reality, whatever it is, is the real source of cause and effect in the world. Not brains, not neurons. Brains and neurons have no causal powers. They cause none of our perceptual experiences and none of our behavior. Brains and neurons are a species-specific set of symbols, a hack. What does this mean for the mystery of consciousness? Well, it opens up new possibilities. For instance, perhaps reality is some vast machine that causes our conscious experiences. I doubt this, but it's worth exploring. Perhaps Reality is some vast interacting network of conscious agents, simple and complex, that cause each other's conscious experiences. Actually, this isn't as crazy an idea as it seems, and I'm currently exploring it. But, but here's the point. Once we let go of our massively intuitive but massively false assumption about the nature of reality, it opens up new ways to think about life's greatest mystery, I bet that reality will end up turning out to be more fascinating and unexpected than we'd ever imagined. The theory of evolution presents us with the ultimate dare. Dare to recognize that perception is not about seeing truth. It's about having kids. Then there's another complication regarding our consciousness that's been introduced by modern technology. The contents of our minds, as Bagot notes, are increasingly mediated by this technology. For example, Jesuit remembers appointments almost exclusively via reminders on his phone. Do these thoughts and facts about his life exist inside his mind? If not, does his Google Calendar count as part of what we might think of as his mind? How about the documents, files, and links he uses to build these shows? Until he speaks the final script, they're the only place where his coherent thoughts can be experienced. You can't pull the script out of his mind, even if his mind is the thing that orchestrated it in the first place. And as you might expect, it keeps on getting weirder, as in the famous Twin Earth Thought Experiment. Putnam famously said that meaning just ain't in the head. What he meant by that was that if one person has in their head one meaning of the word, and another person has in their head the exact same meaning of the word, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're referring to the same thing. Meaning also comes from the external world. It's not solely reliant on the mental states or the physical states of the brains of the people that are talking about it. It's important for the world and the actual state of things to 
come into the mix. If that didn't make any sense, let's take a look at the specific thought experiment and see if that can clear things up. So, imagine we're back in 1600, specifically before Henry Cavendish has discovered that water is H2O. Imagine we have Earth, but also somewhere else in the universe, a place called Twin Earth. On Twin Earth, there is a perfect, identical counterpart to everyone on Earth, and in fact, everything is perfectly the same with one exception. On Earth, water is in fact H2O, whereas on Twin Earth, water is in fact XYZ. However, everyone on Twin Earth and Earth is completely unaware of this because Henry Cavendish on Earth hasn't discovered water is H2O, and Henry Cavendish's twin on Twin Earth hasn't discovered that water is XYZ. Yet. So now imagine that we have someone on Earth called Oscar and his twin on Twin Earth. We'll call him Twin Oscar. They have perfectly identical brains. When Oscar says the word water, he's clearly referring to H2O. It's the only thing he's ever seen that looks like water, and so he's referring to H2O, whereas when Twin Oscar says the word water, he's referring to XYZ. There's no way that Twin Oscar could be referring to H2O because he's never seen it, and there's no way that Oscar could be referring to XYZ because he's never seen that. Even though their mental states and their brains and the words they're using are perfectly identical, Oscar and Twin Oscar are actually referring to very, very different things. Therefore, meaning just ain't in the head. Okay, so there's definitely a real controversy going on between the hard-nosed reductionists, like Ramachandran, who is in agreement with, we should be clear, the vast majority of top scientists in the relevant field, as near as we can tell. And the opposing side, Chalmers, Hoffman, and a small number of other truly thoughtful dissenters against the physicalist-reductionist paradigm. But as you also might expect, the real problem is when bullshit artists like, oh, I don't know, just to pick a name at random, Deepak fucking Chopra. God, do we hate that guy. Insert their confident nonsense into the mix. But since we already did an extensive takedown of Chopra in the past, we're going to assume you accept our assertion that his crankery about quantum consciousness as such is... it's crankery. We should probably at least briefly mention a group of very loud, very enthusiastic consciousness researchers. We want you to imagine just enormous quotation marks around that last word who maintain that through the use of drugs like DMT, ayahuasca, etc., humans don't simply experience drug trips, but literally access an entirely separate and distinct dimension. They base this on both the vividness of the experience and the consistency of the entities that various unrelated DMT-using people tend to meet when they be trippin'. If this sounds pretty fuzzy and unconvincing, join the club. What you tend to hear when you try to get details are descriptions like this. As soon as I broke through the tunnel, it felt like I had died. Uh, because the body dissolved and then the reality, you know, the sound broke apart and everything broke apart and I had this momentary feeling. It's like, okay, I've died. And um, what I realized is that from this higher reality perspective, all those experiences were the same. Like, from that perspective, it was impartial to the traumatic nature of human experience. They were all just being used as material to form the fabric of reality. We know what you're thinking. How is this any different than the pink light and the exegesis? Touché. But the reason Phil's experience is more convincing than the DMT enthusiasts is mostly because he spent the rest of his life trying to figure out what the hell it was. DMT junkies seem all too convinced that they already know exactly what they experienced. And you could too, bro. Just do DMT. Joe Rogan podcast, bro. 
One of our favorite responses to the suggestion, which is not just made by internet bros, but by some actual research psychiatrists, which is that doing these drugs can get you access to other genuine dimensions, comes from the excellent blog Slate Star Codex, which in the guise of reporting a DMT trip actually satirizes the idea that it represents a heightened reality. In it, the narrator asks the entities he encounters to offer proof of their existence, providing factors for 15-digit numbers and other feats presumably within the purview of superintelligent dimension-spanning brainiacs, but which are beyond the ken of mere mortals on drugs. The fact that these entities ignore his requests, combined with the fact that no such experiment has ever offered provable results in the real world, means the DMT reality-slash-consciousness argument currently seems like kind of a dead end. One last clip, which we think synthesizes the neurology and the self-created reality aspects of this whole section rather nicely, comes from Dr. Anil Seth's TED Talk video. Now, all this puts the brain basis of perception in a bit of a different light. Instead of perception depending largely on signals coming into the brain from the outside world, it depends as much, if not more, on perceptual predictions flowing in the opposite direction. We don't just passively perceive the world, we actively generate it. The world we experience comes as much, if not more, from the inside out as from the outside in. If hallucination is a kind of uncontrolled perception, then perception right here and right now is also a kind of hallucination, but a controlled hallucination in which the brain's predictions are being reined in by sensory information from the world. In fact, we're all hallucinating all the time, including right now. It's just that when we agree about our hallucinations, we call that reality. Now I'm going to tell you that your experience of being a self, the specific experience of being you, is also a controlled hallucination generated by the brain. Now, this seems a very strange idea, right? Yes, visual illusions might deceive my eyes, but how could I be deceived about what it means to be me? For most of us, the experience of being a person is so familiar, so unified and so continuous that it's difficult not to take it for granted. But we shouldn't take it for granted. There are, in fact, many different ways we experience being a self. There's the experience of having a body and of being a body. There are experiences of perceiving the world from a first-person point of view. There are experiences of intending to do things and of being the cause of things that happen in the world. And there are experiences of being a continuous and distinctive person over time, built from a rich set of memories and social interactions. Now, many experiments show, and psychiatrists and neurologists know very well, that these different ways in which we experience being a self can all come apart. What this means is the basic background experience of being a unified self is a rather fragile construction of the brain, another experience which, just like all others, requires explanation. To sum up, with all this confusion, it still currently seems as though the most likely scenario is that, as Marvin Minsky put it, and as Ramachandran would agree, minds are what brains do. Or, to quote Bagot one final time, To say that mind is a higher-order emergent property of the brain is simply to say that a miracle occurs, but using a set of words that imply something less than miraculous. But still, this is about the best we can do within the limitations of our current scientific understanding of consciousness and the mind.
was a lot. But hopefully now you see how complex and loaded it is when we're trying to pin down the concepts of consciousness and the self. In his own way, PKD never stopped puzzling over these questions. Probably the single most important work he created outside of the exegesis, based on his 2374 experience, was the fantastic novel Valus. At once the most grounded and one of the strangest of his major novels, the book is in many ways a skewed autobiography, but at a remove. The main character, as we noted earlier, is called Horse Lover Fat. Fat is a potentially suicidal neurotic who believes he has been contacted by God in the form of a pink light. Among his small friend group is a science fiction writer named Philip K. Dick, who reports on Fat's endless self-examination related to this pink light experience and its almost universally negative impacts on his life throughout the novel. As the narrator puts it, I'm not sure God did anything at all for him. In fact, in some ways, God made him sicker. This was a subject on which Fat and I could not agree. Fat was certain that God had healed him completely. That is not possible. There is a line in the I Ching reading, Always ill, but never dies. That fits my friend. Hopefully that quote makes it obvious that the novel is not an attempt to persuade the reader that Fat's vision is self-evidently true and should be adopted by everyone. In fact, the narrator's doubts about the importance and validity of his friend's experience are peppered throughout the book. Knowing this, by direct route from the divine, made Fat a Latter-day prophet. But since he had gone crazy, he also entered absurdities into his tractate. The tractate is a condensed version of the exegesis that's quoted throughout Valus. The book's twin obsessions are, much like PKD's real-life interests, focused toward Fat's pink light experience and the subsequent downfall of the Nixon presidency in 1974, which for real-life PKD and his friends, as well as the characters in the novel, seems like evidence of intervention by a divine hand to bring down a corrupt and repressive government. A real-life Black Iron prison break. Fat is absolutely convinced that these two events are linked. The Sybil said in March 1974, the conspirators have been seen and they will be brought to justice. She saw them with the third eye, the eye of Shiva, which gives inward discernment, but which, when turned outward, blasts with desiccating heat. In August 1974, the justice promised by the Sybil came to pass. Given how world-shaking the Nixon resignation seemed at the time, it was inevitable that Fat-slash-PKD would decide that his experience was the precursor to it, and that Tricky Dick's downfall was potentially the first gasp of a new age of spiritual enlightenment ushered in by the Gnostic Christ. The overthrow of Yaldaba Oath and the Black Iron Prison was near. His friend's skepticism at Fat's oracular pronouncements and concern about their effects on his mental health are brought up short, though, in the novel when they go to see a provocative new science fiction film called Valus. We won't go through the full plot of the movie within the novel, but suffice it to say it depicts the downfall of a corrupt politician through the efforts of an extraterrestrial satellite called, well, you know. The narrator, Fat, and their friends all agree that the coincidental connections to Fat's experience are too strong to be ignored. So they travel together to meet with the film's creator, a rock star named Eric Lampton, and his wife Linda. During the meeting, Fat's group learns that the Lamptons believe they are the latest incarnation of immortal three-eyed beings who have shepherded the development of humanity since ancient times, and that they are, like Fat and co., struggling against the might of the Black Iron Prison. During the discussion, it appears that the Fat-slash-PKD group is accepting all of this as plausible. But as soon as they leave the Lamptons, the narrator dispels this impression. Well, I thought, that's something to accomplish all in one weekend, escaping intact from the most whacked out humans on the planet. It's amazing that when someone else spouts the nonsense you yourself believe, you can readily perceive it as nonsense. In the VW Rabbit, as I had listened to Linda and Eric rattle on about being three-eyed people from another planet, I had known that they were nuts. 
This made me nuts too. The realization had frightened me. The realization about them and about myself. The one aspect of the meeting that remains with the group, though, is the impression that Lampton's preternaturally mature-seeming two-year-old toddler is in fact the incarnation of holy wisdom, and that in spite of her parents' obvious disconnection from reality, she is a harbinger of greater spiritual harmony to come. In fact, during this meeting, she in a sense heals the narrator and horse-lover Fat, who finally come to understand they are actually the same person, namely Philip K. Dick. P.K.D., the author, plays a language joke here. Horse Lover Fat is upon translating the name Philip Dick from Greek and German into English. Thanks to the child's healing presence, the two sides of his personality, skeptic and believer, are finally joined together. Unfortunately, said toddler is subsequently killed by one of the Lampton's hapless, delusional friends, who is attempting to gain access to her wisdom via laser. This promptly causes Fat and the narrator to once again separate. The novel ends with Fat searching the earth, positive that the child will be reborn, and desperate to find her next incarnation. Unlike the earlier novels we covered, there's not much to be translated into exegesis-style metaphors here. Valus is a straightforward, fascinating encapsulation of Dick's own experience as both believer and skeptic regarding his own transcendence. So now we've seen how Dick's exegesis experience combines his obsession with Gnostic Christianity, the concept of self in the cosmos, and the idea that he has created a sort of roadmap to the secret history of the divine through his own past books. And we hope you found our tour as interesting as we did. But still, even having examined all of this through Dick's late-life lens, we encourage you to go back and pour through the original novels. And for the bravest among you, the exegesis. Why? Because as one of the exegesis editors notes, as infectious as Dick's readings are, they don't do justice either to his fiction or to the astonishing intermingling of narrative and reality, fiction and experience that Dick lived through in and after 374. As he writes elsewhere, 374 keeps changing, as if the experience itself were alive. In fact, it is alive, partly because he keeps feeding it through his fiction. It gets more like the novels as the novels get more like it. How do we get outside this feedback loop of reality and fiction to what really happened? We can ask the novels about that. For our part, we can tell you that really engaging with Dick's oeuvre is mind-expanding in the most gratifying, least hippy-dippy sense. Of course, it does have its risks, as it can be easy to fall into the PKD mindset. For example, and I swear this is true, during the research for this episode, I found myself getting targeted Facebook ads to participate in a Bay Area clinical trial under the aegis of UCSF for something called the Cellular Aging and Neurobiology of Depression study. Put that together and you'll see they're testing a medication called CAN-D. They advertised it with that acronym, precisely the same name as the drug that let people put their consciousness in dolls in Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. This is not a joke. It really happened. The only thing that kept Jesuit from going full-on Vegalus was that other PKD fans were commenting on the link, similarly wondering if they were alone in seeing this and trying to confirm they weren't also going cuckoo bananas. Okay, we've made most of our points. Now it's time to examine the impact of Phil Dick's work on the past 40 or so years of sci-fi movies, as well as some of the work by other super genius writers who've dealt with similar themes. And now, from the annals of Tinseltown... The paranoid strain goes to the movies and the library. Before we examine Dick's huge influence on SF cinema, 
We'd first like to offer a quick reading list from other brilliant minds who've dealt with reality and its many illusions in novels and short stories. This is hardly an exhaustive list, but we guarantee you a great time if you check out any of these. First up, Stanislaw Lem. You may recall him as a Polish writer who believed PKD was the only sci-fi guy in the West who was worth reading. We heartily recommend the entirety of Lem's written output, or at least the part that we've read since it's been translated into English. But the book that's most germane for this discussion is the 1971 novel The Futurological Congress. In it, Lem's frequent narrator Ijan Tichy, apologies for that pronunciation, is visiting Costa Rica to attend the titular event, which has been convened to discuss approaches to dealing with the overpopulation problem. While leaders and scientists are still concerned about the impacts of growing population, many estimates now indicate that human population will peak this century before beginning a slow decline. Back in the 1970s, all indicators were that population might continue to increase at an unsustainable rate into the distant future, leading to mass starvation, etc. While he's there, rebel groups foment protests against the government, and it's discovered that the authorities have released psychedelic drugs into the water supply to calm the population. Tishi is dosed and then experiences numerous hallucinations of captures by rebels or the government, helicopter crashes, escapes by jetpack, and waking up in completely different bodies, before he's finally diagnosed as incurable by hospital staff and put in suspended animation until a treatment can be found. He next awakens in the distant year 2039, to discover that the world is a technological paradise. Soon enough, though, he learns that all of this paradise is actually a chemically-induced illusion. When he blocks the inhalable hallucinogens that are pumped into the atmosphere, he realizes the beautiful, abundant world around him is, in reality, horrific. He's not eating a five-star meal in a gorgeous restaurant, but rather slurping gruel in a concrete bunker. Wait, why does that sound familiar? Do we have a deal, Mr. Reagan? You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Give us a minute to get to the movies. Anyway, this is only the tip of the iceberg of the revelations that Tichy experiences in the novel. It's a blackly comic delight, and you should check it out. Next up is the work of Jorge Luis Borges, one of the Paranoid Strain's absolute favorite writers and one of the literary world's true visionaries. Borges never wrote any novels, but his short stories are cream of the crop, and we recommend that you pick up the single-volume collected fictions as soon as possible. Pro tip. The essays and poems collections are also great. We're going to focus here on a single story, the bizarrely titled Talon, Akbar, Orbis, Tertius. See the show notes for a spelling. This encapsulation of the plot will do nothing to lessen the impact of actually reading the story, but I pretty much have to spoil it to even begin explaining it. So sorry about that. In this, as in many of his stories, the narrator is Borges himself. In it, he and his real-life friend discover a land called Akbar is mentioned in certain copies of an encyclopedia. Younger listeners, an encyclopedia was a series of books that people used for reference before Wikipedia came along. But Akbar only appears in a few of these otherwise identical sets of books, which is weird because they're all copies of the same edition. It turns out that Akbar, which according to the elusive entry is either in Turkey or Iraq, but doesn't show up on any other maps has a literary tradition that's entirely devoted to describing not their land, but other imaginary worlds, especially one called Tlon. 
Borges and friend attempt to find any other mentions of this in any other reference materials, but come up empty-handed. Years later, Borges inherits a book when a family friend passes away and discovers it's the 11th volume of a complete encyclopedia of Tlon. Remember, that's the imaginary world that those who live in the mysterious and perhaps fictional Ukbar write about. It gradually becomes clear that for the past couple of centuries, a group of brilliant minds calling themselves Orbis Tertius have worked to create an entire world and detail it in an encyclopedia. The volume Borges discovered is part of this effort. By this point, the secret society has created the language, culture, history, ethics, aesthetics, and everything else that would bring this imagined place to life. The world of Tlon is fascinating, and in a huge nod to George Barclay and the other professors we discussed in our last show, the population takes idealist concepts, specifically the concept that minds, sense impressions, and ideas are the only real things, to the extreme. How extreme? Well, they don't use nouns. For example, Borges notes they wouldn't say the moon rose above the water, but rather something that translates to upward behind the on-streaming it mooned. That's very weird. Indeed. And Borges has a field day with the many ways that this approach, that is truly basing a world on idealism instead of scientific reductionism, would play havoc with science or business or even the idea of maintaining a coherent concept of a consistent world. It's an intellectual tour de force that's made even better by his postscript, which is about what happens once the world becomes aware of this encyclopedia. It turns into a global obsession, with people adopting Tlon's philosophy wholeheartedly, to the point that, several years after the original story was written, Borges notes, in a sense, the world he knew it is gone, and Tlon has essentially become the new world as people now experience it. Tlon has absorbed the Earth simply by presenting a different version of reality, which it turns out that people prefer. A final author mention here. Ted Chang, he's a contemporary, incredibly brilliant writer whose amazing novella The Story of Your Life was adapted into the excellent sci-fi film Arrival a few years ago. He also wrote a very, very brief story set one year after a new, extremely popular, deceptively simple device went on the market. That device is called a predictor, and in the story, it's become a popular fad. Imagine the fidget spinner craze of 2017, only with some horrific, unforeseen consequences. The device features a button and a light. The trick is the light only goes on a second before you press the button. If you think about pressing the button but don't, the light won't go on. If you press the button while somehow trying to pretend you're not going to, sure enough, it lights up one second before your press. Okay, definitely odd. But what's the big deal? The big deal is that this little device proves once and for all that free will is an illusion. We've briefly touched on this before, and it relates to Dennett's argument that there is no self inside our head that's doing our seeing, hearing, thinking, etc. For us, basically, if our minds are material and not something else, a la Chalmers, etc., and all of the matter in the universe has been interacting according to the laws of physics since the Big Bang, then that means the matter that makes up our brains, and hence our minds, is the way it is because of all the things that have come before us. And therefore, the way your brain reacts to outside stimulus, that is, the reason you think and do the things you think and do, is a result of all of those previous interactions, which in turn means that you had no choice but to think the way you do, and to make the choices you make. The composition of your brain is the result of outside forces. If you woke up and ran this morning, or instead woke up and ate a cake, either way, it's because you had to. The material in your brain reacting with the outside world made that inevitable at this point in time. Which doesn't mean you shouldn't get up and run in the morning and shun eating a breakfast cake. It just means that when you do so, you were always going to do so. Because that's how you are, and that's how the universe is. Holy shit. 
That's, that's a lot to take in. Yeah, but as Chang puts it, there have always been arguments showing that free will is an illusion, some based on hard physics, others based on pure logic. Most people agree these arguments are irrefutable, but no one ever really accepts the conclusion. The experience of having free will is too powerful for an argument to overrule. What it takes is a demonstration, and that's what a predictor provides. In other words, many people knew there probably wasn't free will, but the predictor proves it beyond a reasonable doubt. And while most people, though shaken by this realization, move on with their lives, about a third of those who use the device lose all interest in living, and eventually they have to be hospitalized to keep them from starving to death. The final paragraphs reveal that the story you've been reading is a message sent from a year in the future, warning readers that they must continue believing in the illusion of free will, as it may be the only thing that can save civilization. But of course, the author notes ruefully, this effort itself is of course futile. Because everything's determined, the people who are going to use the predictors and lose the will to live were always going to do so. And the sending of the message itself is a waste of time. But it was a waste of time that he has always been fated to send. The whole story takes about five minutes to read, and it's available online. Show notes. There are many other reality-bending fictions we'd love to discuss with you, but we really have to take a moment before we go to talk about the impact that PKD has had on the movies. To get the obvious one out of the way, The Matrix is essentially just a blender diversion of Philip K. Dick, the philosopher Jean Baudrillard, Japanese manga, and an aesthetic that was ripped directly from the bizarre and amazing Invisibles comic series created by Grant Morrison. We've already made several allusions to how much the Wachowskis owe PKD's novels and the exegesis, but a couple of final points. First, remember the way that every person in the whole Matrix is basically turned into Agent Smiths in the largely forgettable third movie? That's essentially what happens at the end of Three Stigmata, only with Palmer Eldritch's artificial eye, teeth, and arm replacing the suit-clad Hugo Weaving. Then there's this quote from the exegesis, one of the many times Dick restated his core thesis. See if you spot similarities. We seem to be confined within a metal prison, but something vital has secretly penetrated the enclosing ring around us and fires assistance and advice to us in the form of video and audio signals. Neither the prison ring is visible to us, nor the signal system which fires, nor the entity which is penetrated through us. Help is here, but we still remain here within the prison. We aren't yet free. I take it that the camouflaged invisibility of the signals is to keep the creator of the prison from knowing that help is here for us. The first great well-kept secret is that we are slaves in prison. The second, that help has quietly breached through the walls to inform us, to teach us how to lift the siege, what to do, and when. It's not like all of this is a problem exactly. We've all heard that good artists copy and great artists steal and all that. We just can't help but wish that the Wachowskis had stolen more material from their excellent sources and thereby improved the latter two lackluster films in the trilogy. Note, Jesuit insists that there is a world in which a completely different version of the third movie makes the second movie good in retrospect. I won't bother to share this with you, as it's obviously wrong, but if you ever meet him in person and mention it, just be sure you're ready for a long, boring digression. And we have, of course, mentioned a few of the dozens of direct adaptations of Dick novels and stories, more of which are coming out every year. Some are great, like Blade Runner and Spielberg's Minority Report. Some are huge, campy fun rides that deviate tremendously from the source material, like the original Total Recall. Get your ass to Moss. Get your ass to Moss. Loosely based on PKD's short story, we can remember it for you wholesale. 
and some are trash, like the forgettable Ben Affleck trifle paycheck, or the late-period Nick Cage nightmare next, or the Gary Sinise vehicle. Is that even a phrase that makes sense? Imposter. Point being that there are plenty of swing-and-a-miss adaptations as well as the great ones. But the biggest PKD influence is on good-to-great films that aren't direct adaptations, but rather leverage his ideas to tell new stories, as was the case in that one good Matrix movie. For example, there are films like Open Your Eyes, poorly remade for American audiences as Vanilla Sky, as well as Inception. Part of each film's plot deals with the question of whether or not the protagonist is in the real world or a fully simulated one. As a bonus, Inception, which concerns agents who enter the dreams of their targets to acquire information or to subconsciously influence their actions, has a real nested reality scenario highly reminiscent of Ubik's ever-shifting, layered dream world. There's also the paranoid fantasy of They Live, where everyman construction worker Rowdy Roddy Piper accidentally puts on a pair of magic sunglasses and learns that the world is run by hideous alien beings who are controlling the masses through subliminal messages. Consume, obey, etc. These are disguised behind TV shows, billboards, etc. No one without the glasses can see the aliens or the messages, and in fact many are resistant to learning about all this, which leads to one of the greatest ever on-screen brawls as Piper fights his friend, played by Keith David, in an attempt to force David to try on the glasses. Never have a greater number of terrifyingly realistic kicks to the testicles been lovingly rendered in such a short period of time. Endlessly rewatchable. Please note that Jesuit forces me to say these things. It's so good. And its sinister, manipulated unreality owes plenty to Philip K. Dick. There's also the flawed but incredibly engaging Existence from David Cronenberg, whose plot is too fucked up to explain here, but in which, once again, layered dreamlike realities culminate in a shocking ending whereby we discover the motivations of our main characters, in essence, the very fact of who they are, is suddenly upended as the illusions are removed. Plus, it offers some of the creepiest scenes ever, as users jack into a virtual reality simulation by making physical connections from their brains to these horrifying fleshy biopods. Peak Cronenberg body horror. Perhaps the best use of Dick's work is in the superb film about love loss and the inevitability of repeating past mistakes, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. We won't spoil the experience for those who haven't had the pleasure. But the movie's tender, heartfelt tale of two broken people who need and repel each other in equal measure as well as its stunning visualizations of the way that memory can change as the mind is altered by technology, makes it, while not a direct adaptation of any specific story, perhaps the greatest rendition of Philip K. Dick's themes that has ever been put on the screen. I'm not a concept, Joel. I'm just a fucked-up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. I'm not perfect. I can't see anything that I don't like about you. But you right will. Now, I can't. But you will. You know, you will think of things, and I'll get bored with you and feel trapped, because that's what happens with me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's time to wrap up. So we know PKD never truly settled on what his experience meant. And toward the end of his life... 
and of the notes that make up the exegesis, he began to acknowledge that what he was processing was maybe more about himself struggling to understand and make sense of his chaotic life and inner sense of consciousness than it was about any outside agent. As one exegesis editor noted, After seven years of spinning an astonishing plethora of theories, the fact that Dick can now admit to his failure to provide a workable explanation is remarkable. His insight here that the abstract emerges from the noisy particulars of the world rather than, as in the platonic model, from an ideal reality of which empirical reality is a flawed copy is a growing realization in science studies as well. In How the Laws of Physics Lie, Nancy Cartwright argues that all that ever actually exists is the noise of the world from which scientific laws are abstracted. In a very different sense, contemporary interpretations of quantum mechanics provide similar insights. As such, the stabilities that constitute scientific laws emerge from a probabilistic froth at the quantum level in which different kinds of world trajectories are encoded. In this view, the froth counts as the ultimate reality and the stability as the epiphenomenon. You'll see that here Dick has reached the same hard-won impasse when considering reality and his place in it that the quantum physicists and indeed the philosophers we dealt with last time did. Reality appears to be a thing that we construct in our heads. We don't know how we do it, we don't know what it corresponds to exactly in the world outside of our heads, but we're continuing to work at the problem, and accepting easy answers, the way that conspiracy theorists do, has absolutely no chance of getting us closer to the truth, or to give the final word to the man himself. My insanity, given an insane world, is paradoxically a facing of reality. And this is sane. I refuse to close my eyes and ears. Our world and our proper role in it is paradoxical. We are then all mad, but I uniquely choose to go mad while facing pain, not mad while denying pain. These are simply different paths, but mine hurts more. It is not necessarily better. It is more a curiosity. Why would I choose this route? Because I am a saint. I have kept my soul, as now and then an occasional reader realizes. But I have not yet proven that there is a soul. Thus, I may have chosen my route in vain. Little can be said for my point of view, except that it can't be logically demolished. If it could be, I would have done so. Thus I am in touch with reality. So then, in what sense am I insane? I am insane in that I continue to face the truth without the ability to come up with a workable answer. I indict the whole universe and ourselves as irrational, myself included. I really do not know anything in terms of the solution. I can only state the problem. No other thinker has ever stated a problem and so miserably failed to solve it in human histories. Human thought is, basically, problem-solving, not problem-stating. Again, my very failure to come up with a plausible solution, even when I try, simply verifies the magnitude of the problem, rather than impugning my problem-solving faculties. It shows that what we normally regard as solution systems really evade the reality and complexity and magnitude of the problem. Fundamental irrationality giving rise to pain, grief, loss, and death. My failure is the failure of all mankind. To find a solution or explanation, the fault is not mine. That's exactly right. The fault isn't his. Or ours. We're all just doing our best. But in order for us to remain a part of the grand endless effort to get ever closer to the reality behind reality, we, like Philip K. Dick, must remain constantly on guard to protect against succumbing to the paranoid strain. 
This has been The Paranoid Strain. Email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com and visit on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. Also, we'd love to have you sign up for our Facebook group. Just send us a request. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra and indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Our latest soundtrack was mixed by South Fork Hoss. Big Mucho put together our super-duper website and helps in ways big and small. And Willem UFO's pretty pictures are the searing pink light that illuminates our deepest thoughts. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next time, we recap a bunch of new stuff that's happened in relation to our previous episodes. It's going to be a quick hit, raw, raw, raw recap. In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically.
transcendence, schizophrenic meltdown, rupture with reality, potato, potato. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.